The pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. I no longer think infections generally should be the major metric. We really have to focus on hospitalizations and deaths now. We're not going to eradicate this. Sooner or later, as we begin to live with it, virtually everybody is going to wind up getting exposed and likely get infected. The scarlet letter of this pandemic is the mask. It's inconvenient, it's annoying, and it reminds us that we're in the middle of a pandemic. So the question becomes, is it rational to disrupt our lives in all these big and consequential ways? Mm -hmm. At what point do the costs of pandemic precautions outweigh the benefits? Six former administration officials last week wrote that open letter urging the administration to change course, to change strategy. Is it time? It is time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is every day. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. It's been a really long year, and we've done a lot of amazing coverage. None of that would have been possible without your support. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron, then consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to our second weekly bonus episode and our entire back catalog of episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today is going to be a kind of look back at the last year. COVID year three is wrapping up, and we're going to walk through what happened and try and make some sense of how we got where we're at. And in fact, three of us were sick last week with COVID. And this was supposed to be our first full panel recording, but Jules is out sick with something else. So around this time last year, we did a similar episode to what we're going to do today. Um, We looked back on the year in review, but with one very specific lens in mind, which was the year in the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. So longtime listeners will know what we mean by this when we say it, but for people who are new to the show or for people who don't know what we mean by the sociological production of the end of the pandemic, what we mean by this is that the COVID pandemic is still very much ongoing. As of the most recently available data on the date of recording, according to the CDC, 2,981 people died of COVID in the last week in the United States, which is around 425 people a day. And according to the same data in the last year, 255,361 people have died of COVID in the United States. So that's a quarter of a million people and more than two and a half full incalculable losses, to borrow a phrase from the New York Times early on in the pandemic. And this is obviously not to mention the many other consequences of COVID, among them long COVID, as we've talked about at length recently, Or, for instance, the more than 10 million children who have been left without a caregiver because of COVID. Right. And despite this, to quote President Biden, the pandemic 
is over. I was wondering when you're going to bring that line. I was like, <laughs> right. I was like, oh, do we need a good example? Well, Biden just saying the, pre- the pandemic is right. over in September. That's perhaps that's he actually said it. No, no. Oh, yes, he did. Okay, yes. And this gets to the heart of what we're talking about today and what we mean by the sociological production of the end of the pandemic. That is, how can the pandemic be over in the face of the figures that we've just mentioned? And the answer is something that has informed, really, I think, the entire way that we've talked about COVID on this show from really Mm -hmm. the beginning of the pandemic, um, which is that there has been a profound social and political process to naturalize the pandemic and its effects. And so the thing I think we've followed most closely here on Death Panel is the key moments in that slippage, really, showing when and how this normalization occurs, calling out when what's often presented as big new insight into COVID has much less to do with anything real and much more to do with what we'd like to believe about the pandemic. And so, again, we're going to be looking back at the last year in that process. Um, But what I'd like to say from the top uh, is that this year in review show, I think, is going to be a little bit different from last year in a kind of interesting way. Last year, I just want to note when we did a show called COVID Year Two, it had a very specific goal, which was to help people understand that since his inauguration, Biden and his administration have been the chief proponents of COVID normalization. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely, it was true then. It's really true. Still true. Uh, Still you, true. Yes. When you yep. look at the events this year, um, <laughs> but you have to understand: in fall 2021, this position was not very well understood or very commonly understood. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, but the, um, ironically, though, or or I don't know, just sort of contradictorily, it felt like I remember like getting ready for that episode and it felt like going into it. I, I knew exactly where the narrative was going. It seemed really like clear. And now I think kind of as a result of the social sociological production that we've been talking about the narrative is is somehow even murkier like it's more yeah. obvious yes. in a way like what they've been doing but then yes. i'm i'm like one i just from the top want to say Artie, you you put this timeline together and uh just like hats off to you because um <laughs> i i just think like even like piecing in part because you know uh media is queuing off of what uh elites are doing and that's just that, that like makes the narrative like harder to congeal so this is this is, I think, going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say, I guess two things. One is that I think that unfortunately, you'll probably experience a similar feeling this year <laughs> looking back at in terms of like re-understanding the year as uh, as happened last year. And two is like actually having revisited COVID year two now. It's very sad, actually, to kind of look back and see like, well, yeah. a lot of the trend lines that we were pointing out, a lot of the things that we were saying, well, it seems like this is where it's headed. That's basically where, where it that's went. the story. Yeah, like the. Yeah. The story that we suggest right. might unfold in COVID year three is what we're about to go through, actually. Indeed uh, unfolded. <laughs> yeah, indeed yeah. unfolded. Um, so thankfully, I do think, as we've been saying, now it's much better understood uh, that the Biden administration have been kind of the leading edge in normalizing the pandemic. Um, so if you've heard last year's COVID recap, this should build on that. But even if you haven't, this year's show stands alone and has a much broader message, which is, again, this is the year that Biden declared the pandemic over. Um, But just because they want to be done with it doesn't mean that it is over. And just because they've normalized things like the end of masking doesn't mean that we can't win things back. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. really important to keep in mind right before we dive in <laughs> um like as we'll see they want it to be over and done with without so much as passing paid sick leave and for that matter far from taking this moment to recognize that we have a profound unmet need in providing free universal health care uh the biden administration is actively about to kick covid vaccines and therapeutics to the private market mm-hmm. and stop guaranteeing to pay for them at the federal level and we can't just let that slide so Welcome to our year in review, 2022, a year in which we all got played. <laughs> yes, we this did. is COVID year three, the year the pandemic ended. <sighs> yes. What a title. So much like last year, we're going to proceed through a timeline of events, stopping for commentary frequently. Also, fair warning. If it seems like we're spending a lot of time on the first three months of the year, you're right. Uh, so much <laughs> happened in that period that really needs to get unpacked. And I promise the pace will pick up after that. The other thing I want to note just before we start the sort of timeline is this has something of a companion episode. When we were researching this, it became very evident that there was kind of a second entire story here that also required a lot of extending back like further into 2021. So that episode, which is going to be called something like how Democrats ended masking or something like that is going to go through a series of events that overlap a little bit with what we'll be talking about today and is more about the sort of social process of how liberals just gave up on masking. I mentioned that because, you know, these two episodes, I think, will really inform each other. And that masking episode will probably be out soon. Or if you're listening to this unlocked in the main feed, it's probably already out. So without further ado, timeline. Here we go. I'm going to more or less um, begin where our where last year's year in review left off. But I think in order to sort of understand where we're picking up, we kind of need to give some some brief context, actually, for what the end of 2021 looked like. So let me just set the scene, if you will. It's the end of 2021. We've passed about 800,000 dead. We haven't hit one million yet by the official count, at least. There are still mask mandates in eight states. That's right. Only eight. Yeah. We get into why this is in the masking episode. In mid-November of 2021, the Discourse Factory is operating at full blast, um, (laughs) following a series of enormously influential op-eds and press appearances earlier in the fall. A few experts, among them J.G. Allen and others, have begun to really spread the idea that, quote, one-way masking works which will turn out to become the slogan of giving up on masking. Mm -hmm. Also prominent in the discourse at the time is the idea of off ramps. Um, The New York Times writes, we need to talk about an off ramp for masking at school. Everybody was so anxious. (laughs) We need to talk about it. When are we getting off the highway, mom? (laughs) Monica Gandhi writes in the Atlantic that it's time to contemplate the end of the crisis, which is all about the idea of off ramps. And that's all she's been doing. (laughs) It was time for her like six months before that. uh, Listen, let's not be ableist here. Monica Gandhi maybe takes a long time to process things and that's just how you know she works uh no but last year you know when we were really looking back at things we kind of diagnosed like this moment as being like uh trickle down gaslighting where you had all this sort of like contemplating going on that was suggesting that we should start turning away from some of these things yeah Um, November 12th, 2021, David Leonhardt writes for the New York Times, quote, the bottom line is that COVID now presents the sort of risk to most vaccinated people that we unthinkingly accept in other parts of life. This raises the question of which precautions should end now or soon and which should become permanent, unquote. 
In November of 2021, uh, this also puts us within a year of the upcoming midterm elections. I mention this because at the time, um, some Democratic Party politicians like the governor of New Jersey start running focus groups. Uh, One of their findings, according to them at least, is that the remaining COVID protections in their states galvanize at least one block of voters in their state to vote against them. Um, (laughs) Governors start talking amongst themselves about this. This will be important later when we get to February. At the end of November, while many people are gathered together for Thanksgiving, as they have been encouraged to do so by the Biden administration, the world learns of Omicron for the first time, followed by a more or less immediate spike in cases and deaths. Despite this, the discourse immediately begins. The new Omicron variant is mild mm-hmm. this idea this that omicron my favorite is, <laughs> one i think um the the idea that omicron was milder than previous variants uh ultimately wouldn't pan out to be true but that doesn't stop people from running with the line for months and really still saying it today that said of course the supposed evidence that omicron is a milder variant came almost exclusively from anecdotal comments made by physicians and virologists in south africa where it was first discovered sequenced yes sequenced specifically you know despite the enormous prevalence of this supposedly mild new variant between november 3rd of 2021 and the end of the year seventy-three thousand five hundred and fourteen people die of covid in the u.s all these figures going forward unless otherwise stated are cdc figures and uh one final kind of piece of uh fascinating context is that by the end of december 2021 the cdc's official stance on reinfections reads as follows Quote, cases of reinfection with COVID-19 have been reported, but remain rare. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Rare (laughs) because it's inherently biologically rare or rare because it's been prevented with NPIs prior to this point. I mean, except for by that point, we all already know that reinfections are a thing. Yeah. They're common. But no, I I mean, it is telling. Um really actually how far we've come in terms of comprehension on reinfections and breakthrough infections in 2022, because, you know, thinking about it now, it feels like a year to five years ago that we were being yelled at by people for even like bringing up the topic of breakthrough deaths, right? Mm-hmm. Like that mm-hmm. feels like a decade ago, but oh. it was it was like it was nine like months April. ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was like oh, we're, we're getting to that. That's a big, that's actually. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's a little jarring to remember like, oh yeah, right. Like around the holidays in 2021, we were still fighting about reinfection being real. People yeah. still were like getting up on CNN to be like, yeah, you get COVID once, you're good, bro. Right. And then, like, well, shortly after, a million positive tests in a day, right? Like, two weeks later. I think the Omicron wave that we're discussing was really kind of the final, I mean, not to be too morbid about it, but I guess it it's appropriate, like, the final nail in the coffin for, like, any credibility attached to Biden's vaccine-only strategy. Right. You know, it was becoming clear over that summer that it wasn't really going to work, that, like, shutting down the virus, you know, without any NPIs was, like, not really going to be possible with the vaccines that were available. But I feel like the Omicron wave was kind of the absolute death of that, like, the credibility of that position. I think the Biden administration has maintained that position, you know, to this day. Yeah, Um, credibility doesn't matter, right, at some point, because (laughs) when you, I mean, I feel like the other big thing that's changing around this time, or actually before this time, but now it's sort of uh, by the point that already you're talking about is sort of, like, locked in, is, like, 
this market for expertise mm-hmm. is really the 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 value that you get in that market is yeah. sort of going with the the most optimistic like you get more credibility the more optimistic you are about things yeah right. and the more um, you toe the line that everything's fine that the Biden administration has got this under control that simply you know Biden just caring about it in a way that in a qualitatively different way than Trump is like going to be enough right and so so my point is that it's not that there aren't people who are you know out there saying like or you know casting doubt on those things uh, but I, I don't I just don't think at this point that they have as much uh, cachet. Um, yeah. And then and then really by now, as we'll see, like they have n- like zero uh, cachet to some extent, like they've they've been completely marginalized. Yeah. Also, I think as we'll see, it is I think this is a really big uh, component of the story. This both sort of reinfections and breakthrough deaths. The idea that we kind of like persist on with this vaccine only strategy, despite the fact that like it's like we don't like the 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 Biden administration, I think, essentially refuses to absorb new information about this (laughs) and adjust their plan at all. But so uh, anyway, back back to our our timeline, Um, we're going to start the timeline proper, not just the context with um, December 2021, because a lot of the events, you know, we recorded COVID year two. And like, I think it was actually exactly this day, December December 13th, 13th. last year. So in December 2021, the Biden administration was, among other things, still using the pandemic of the unvaccinated line. I lead with this in part because uh, this line was used largely during a time when data itself on breakthrough deaths, the thing we were just talking about, um, that is deaths in people who have been fully vaccinated, uh, which is defined by having taken a primary vaccine series. Um, At this time, that data was not forthcoming from the CDC. Um, In the fall of 2021, the CDC stops reporting vaccination status alongside information on COVID deaths. So from about September 2021 on, we are for months in the dark, like totally in the dark um, regarding breakthrough deaths. In fact, in last year's year in review, all we could do is speculate about these the prevalence of these based on the few states reporting them at the time. However, in April, the CDC would finally begin updating one data set on, on that, showing deaths by vaccination status in a data set covering about 66% of the U.S. population. So if we assume that's nationally representative, then in that month in December, uh, while you know Biden is saying this, they're still perpetuating this pandemic of the unvaccinated line, 29% of U.S. COVID deaths were in people who were fully vaccinated. Um, breakthroughs are so prevalent at the time, actually, that Biden officials even get asked by news anchors on places like CBS's Face the Nation in December, essentially, but where are the data on breakthrough deaths? Um, there's a whole episode on this from April called Breakthroughs, where we go through the whole timeline of appearances. But uh, so what's important about this to note is that, uh, as we're saying, you know, this data set comes out in April. The CDC was collecting information on this. They just wouldn't reveal it for a few months. Um, Walensky and Fauci both say in press appearances that they have internal metrics on this. Despite this, they continue to use the pandemic on the of the unvaccinated line. And to, to really drive this home, I want to juxtapose this with what we know was going on inside the Biden administration at the time. So here's a CNN report from December 18th. Uh, Quote, President Joe Biden's top health officials came to an afternoon briefing at the White House Thursday, December 16th, with a warning and a request. 
Biden listened intently as the officials laid out the contours of a looming coronavirus surge that could accelerate rapidly, swamp hospitals, and send the country into another bleak winter. Yet Biden's team also came to the evergreen-bedecked Roosevelt Room with potentially more positive news. Many of those cases will remain mild or even asymptomatic in vaccinated people, particularly those who have gotten booster shots. It was a message the officials urged Biden to deliver to the public in the clearest terms possible, according to people familiar with the session. Only by laying out the stark difference in outcomes between vaccinated and unvaccinated infections could the gravity of the moment come through, unquote. That very same day, Biden says the following in a public statement, quote, For the unvaccinated, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death, if you're unvaccinated, for themselves, for their families, and for the hospitals, they'll soon overwhelm, <laughs> unquote. God, that's still like, I've been doing kind of my own like research into this time period, and this still stands out as one of the most ghoulish things that I've ever heard. Um, yeah, I just absolutely. like can't believe that that was <laughs> said. <laughs> well, and I think that that framework and that understanding of where COVID is sort of taking its mortality toll from, it was really cemented for so many people at that point, And they, like the Biden administration, have not assessed or changed any of those priors, right? Like the idea that the vaccine was a silver bullet is still so pervasive. Um, so I promise that December is short, but the last major development in December 2021 we need to talk about is the abrupt shift, and I mean abrupt, in COVID isolation policy coming from the CDC or recommendations from the CDC going from 10 days of isolation after you've had a positive COVID test down to five days. Um, this was made with the explicit intention of getting people back into the workplace quicker, whether they were still shedding virus or not. We There are a lot of competing versions of the story of like why this happened exactly. A lot of people point to this letter from the CEO of Delta, which is certainly part of the story, but I want to just contextualize uh, what kind of like the commentariat was talking about at the time in the days leading up to the abrupt, I think it's December 27th announcement that they would shrink COVID isolation down to five days, despite the fact that there's no scientific basis for that. People are, you know, often still infectious after five days. So December 7th, the Atlantic quote, why are we still isolating vaccinated people for 10 days? December 17th, Vox's Dylan Scott, does it make sense for vaccinated people with COVID-19 to isolate for 10 days? December 18th, Ashish Jha, at that point about three months away from getting the job as the new White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Ashish Jha stepping his pussy up to get that White House appointment. <laughs> In an interview with NPR, quote, We do not need to be doing mass quarantining right now. We have kids across America at home waiting out a 14-day quarantine. Totally unnecessary. Industry groups get involved only really in the week after those articles and press appearances. December 21st, Delta Airlines CEO sends a letter to the Biden administration uh, asking explicitly, quote, to address the potential impact of the current isolation policy safely. We propose a five day isolation from symptom onset for those who experience a breakthrough infection, unquote. There's, you know, a couple of other pieces of activity on this, but the important thing is then on December 27th, the CDC announces the change. Um, isolation time is to be cut down from 10 days after initial infection 
down to five. That same afternoon, swiftly following the announcement, a still doing it on spec, Ashish Jha writes a New York Times op-ed praising the decision. As we noted at the time, though, uh, the CDC rushed the decision so quickly, it didn't even include a statement of scientific basis with its guideline change, uh, as such things usually do. We know then from reporting uh, pretty quickly afterward that essentially what happened is the Sunday after Christmas, uh, Rochelle Walensky just kind of told people at the CDC, we're doing this, find a justification for it. A lot of people... You know, they speak to press saying they're you know pissed off that people were left in the dark about this. Uh, one report from the New York Times says of this, quote, some researchers bristled at being left out of the decision making process and were enraged by the agency's public statement the next day that the change was motivated by science. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because they were fully well, lying. <laughs> I think Walensky even said, I don't remember when this was, but Walensky made some public statement essentially saying a 10 day, you know, 10 day quarantine isolation guidance would be fundamentally disruptive to society um, because so many people were getting sick. So like it was right out front, even contemporaneously that they were like well aware of the, the tsunami of infections that were coming. They were well aware of what that was going to mean for like, you know, the functioning of society. And they decided You know, in the this is the argument I think that I'm going to be making throughout this episode. But in the trade off or in the balance between public health and economic health, economic health has to win every time. And I think that really came through in Walensky's statements. Well, I mean, this is like how Ruthie Gilmore defines organized abandonment, which is like the economic health becomes the stand in for like greater population health, actually, Mm -hmm. as a metric. It's the thing that allows. Yeah. It's it's it, I think the way that the argument would go is that like it's actually the precursor and that uh, in, if you don't have that, then like society itself falls apart. And so, you know, mm-hmm. every other kind of concern, I mean, yep. which is really which is a really funny, which is true. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, well, it's just an odd. I mean, I don't know what to make of it in a country where 17 percent of GDP is healthcare. You know, I'm not sure. Well, like, well, like what, a what does that really mean? GDP. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I, like, I don't know. Like, that's what it's. It's uh. the the quote you're one of the quotes you're referring to, Abby, is uh, CNN asks Walensky. So what you're saying is it sounds like this decision had as much to do with business as it did with science. Walensky quote. It spoke to behaviors as well as what people were willing to do, adding that quote, <laughs> people would feel well enough to be at work. Also, uh, at the time, <laughs> in an interview, uh, <laughs> I love to speak to behaviors as well as to what people would be. Um, also, in a in an interview, I think on the same day or, or just the day after, uh, Anthony Fauci is asked about the same thing, and he says, "Quote: There is a danger that there will be so many people who are being isolated for the full ten days that you could have a major mm-hmm. negative impact on our ability to keep society running." <laughs> So the decision was made of saying, let's get that cut in half. What they're saying is, listen, we decided to do full Beyblade. We, we got are an letting it rip. People. Come on. A condition of letting it rip is that in order for this to work, right, we have to make COVID shorter when it's not shorter. So like any good attempt to impose a kind of like period on illness that often like extends far beyond the clinical encounter, we've just decided that covid is like done in five days yeah for these purposes well walensky and fauci are saying essentially what you weren't aware that health is defined as a relation to capital right (laughs) like the 
average person does not understand that the NIH and the CDC are offering economic policy advice here, (laughs) right? Like they understand that representatives of the NIH and the CDC speak about biological facts, reality, and what has been shown by the evidence to be like real, right? So when you kind of translate this into the, the average person's understanding again, like so many people have interpreted this move that, as we're saying, was so clearly almost like the kind of framework of like, well, the the actual reality of COVID being as long as it is, this is an undue burden on our plan and the context mm-hmm. of this like level of hive spread that we've decided to go with. So this is why we need to do it. This is like for for, you know, economic reasons. Everyone understood it, though, is like, no, no, no. COVID will just last five days now. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, yeah it, exactly. it's, you know, be, like. To, to claim like, oh, yeah, like we didn't know that having the CDC or the NIH like put out that messaging and say that like would be translated into people understanding that biologically COVID was now shorter. Well, and mm-hmm. let me at the mild discourse outside. I mean, come on. And let's be yeah. real about this, too. At or around the same time, the CDC also runs an ad on Facebook and other places uh, oh, around <laughs> emphasizing this guideline change, really, without stating it explicitly. Um, the ad in question shows a masked barista standing confidently uh, in front of the camera with text that reads, oh, I quote, this. I'm not letting COVID-19 take my shifts. So, yes. Nobody yeah. better lay a finger on my butterfinger. <laughs> nobody better lay a finger on my labor exploitation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, in the context of the uh, labor fights over sick leave that we've seen this year, it's an incredibly ominous sign yeah but i think i mean it's just so i think this is so important like this guideline change yeah is like so key because as you know even this like horrible cdc ad i think is showing this is how the administration reconciled both pressing the accelerator pedal on commercial activity and extremely high essentially unlimited viral transmission and i feel like yeah. that's a theme that kind of carries um absolutely carries through to the rest of the year no no for sure i was gonna say actually this in my opinion this guideline change marks sort of the beginning of practically like a bloodbath of guideline yes. changes yes. and <laughs> guideline um chaos. removed covid protections and and everything else that really carries through into like march um yeah. so yeah. anyway that that's that brings us basically to the end of December. I just want to note to, to mark this out. I'll be doing some of this periodically over the course of this, but by the end of 2021, over 825,000 people have died of COVID in the U S. Um, we haven't even hit a million yet. Um, so that brings us to January by January. The idea that Omicron is mild was more or less solidified. Um, the New York Times helps quite a bit in that. Um, David Leonhardt even ran a newsletter in the Times on January 5th titled Omicron is Milder, uh, which he followed up with his declaration 17 days later that Omicron is in retreat, despite the fact that in January some <laughs> 69,986 people would die of COVID that month alone. Mikey Barbaro, um, like horse voice, talking about yeah. how great it is to be able to go out to eat again. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, this idea that Omicron is in retreat was also part of a broader phenomenon that held in the early months of 2022 that cases were falling or even crashing dramatically, even though cases were still at record highs. Um, they were just falling in the sense that they were reducing from already outrageous peaks. Again, we hit um, one million positive tests in a single day mm-hmm. in yeah. January. So it's like hyper magical thinking. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, so anyway, the, the year started with a lot of activity um, added to the mild discourse was the continued drumbeat of one way masking works, which by the end of 2021 hadn't been fully accepted yet, uh, but had gained a huge foothold by the beginning of January. Um, just to give you a sense of how completely ridiculous the it's mild discourse got in the middle of a gigantic COVID wave, I'd like to read one of my favorite headlines of the year. <laughs> Possibly of the entire pandemic, really. Wall Street Journal, January 10th, 2022, asking, stop the spread? Speeding it may be safer. I think I pushed that one down. <laughs> I put that into a memory hole I didn't want to open but again. But this is, this is a great example of how, you know, I think what's really kind of interesting about like January, February of is how great Barrington declaration type thinking this like herd immunity strategy comes roaring back but this time sanitized it's super mainstream it's Mm -hmm. democrats you know what I mean this time it's not like fringe scientists and you know Trump telling people to drink hydroxychloroquine like this time it's it's mainstream liberals and the you know I mean the Wall Street Journal I I guess is not like a liberal publication but um, well but the Times sure the Times yeah (laughs) yeah I mean and then like sort of like what better sign do you need that like the social polarization that people you know the sort of affective partisan polarization that people sort of attribute as like the main cause of Mm -hmm. all ills is not irrelevant I think I mean certainly it has relevance for people's beliefs and that like I I am I'm not an ideology denier in that sense but I also think it's like at the elite level it is not that ideological fracture that's driving things there's actually a hell of a lot of convergence and it takes different and I think it takes different sort of robes you know it wears different (laughs) colors you know but it's but it really at the elite, you know, at the elite level, anyway, there is a sort of convergence. Uh, Total that, convergence. That you that some sorts of policy interventions are unacceptable and clash with the management of a liberal market economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, and and there's really, and the thing is, it's not just about ideas; it's also about uh, organizational power. There's no countervailing. Yes like structure to discipline uh, or to rein in uh, those ideas that there might be in some places, but it's kind of marginal. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I think that's sort of why you see this um, convergence. And I think this, there's sort of like this publication bias in the literature on the political economy of COVID, which is like a lot of it is about 2020 Mm -hmm. and less of it just because the publication process is like not about 2021 or 2022. But I do think that's sort of what, you're seeing by this point. Yeah. Well, and Phil, that was kind of your sort of thesis last year, which was that when we were looking back at 2021, your takeaway was like top level Biden is the manager of capitalism. And that's kind of the role that's playing out. And I think a lot of people spent a lot of the last year of 2022 trying to understand, 
you know, why the Biden administration was doing what it was doing, why it wasn't mm-hmm, doing mm-hmm. what it should be doing. No, and that's not. And the thing is, like, that's not Biden's role as the manager of capitalism. That is the president's. The president. Like, yes. Structural the president's role, role a structural in the American role, yes. political yeah. economy. Yeah. Any, right. Any like, that's why yeah. it's like important to think about, like, how did the president get these powers? Like, where where does the economic authority for the president come from? And like, how did that get managed in the wake of like the end of the New Deal? Um, mm-hmm. how did that sort of get get channeled? And I do think that's sort of where you see that uh, kind of like palimpsest of those earlier compromises uh, with capital kind of baked into what the role of the president is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, like a lot of people were sort of spending 2022 sort of ruminating on sort of what the motivations were for like why Biden as a specific personality was doing this or why the administration as a specific administration was doing this. And Mm -hmm. some people were saying, you know, this is ignorance. This is malice. This is misinformation. That's what's (laughs) that's what's sort of causal here. Um, Maybe like a lack of activism or a lack of pressure. And I think we were really trying to sort of hold this line of like the issue is like competing and conflicting priorities. And again, this kind of structural role that's built in, in terms of really like what people think the role of government is versus like what the government actually does and and is charged with overseeing, right? And prioritizing. And I, I think, you know, it's that kind of popular imaginary of like what, you know, governance is, right? And then the reality of how governance actually works is really kind of one of the themes of what's clashing here in 2022. Right. Like what's happening is not because of whatever your fantasy is of their personality type or something. Mm -hmm. It's about the fundamental political economy. Right. And this is why we were sort of holding the line on on Zion's like saying you can't just like replace one person and expect everything to magically be fixed as a result. So back to our timeline, Uh, the other signpost ideas essentially of January are that cases, COVID cases have now become decoupled from deaths uh, that we should therefore stop worrying about COVID cases entirely my favorite example of this, of course, our dearly despised Ben Mazur at The Atlantic writing a piece with the following headline, Stop Wasting COVID Tests, People, Ugh, um, arguing up. that we were over-testing people, catching too many positives in people who were asymptomatic, and thus, quote, each unnecessary swab that you consume means one fewer is available for more important for someone purposes. Who yeah. Oh my God. Um, well, there's one. That was all I want to say about this is that there's one very important sense in which COVID deaths and COVID cases are not decoupled and can't be decoupled, which is that everyone who dies of COVID has to contract COVID. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And of like, course, um, you know, it. Ben Mazer has a Substack now, and his most recent piece was like. Public health is too political, and this is the problem with the COVID discourse. Well, that's clown okay. shit. Like, I'm so, like, <laughs> public health, the NIH, the CDC, like, the CDC is a political body. The head of it is appointed by the president. The budget, like, the NIH budget that public health research is used to conduct is an outcome of, like, federal budgeting <laughs> congressional processes. Budgeting. Yeah, like, congressional action. <laughs> like, it is the dumbest fucking thing in the world to say that public health is, like, too political like at this point i mean it's so at just at face value it's impossible to take anyone seriously who is doing this kind of hand-wringing about this artificial separation between political processes and public health 
Like yeah. it just, it doesn't, well, it fundamentally doesn't make any sense. Well, and I think the story that we're in the middle of telling is very good evidence of that. So for example, the reason <laughs> yeah, the I want to really hit that. this, the reason I really want to hit this particular thing pretty hard, this idea that cases are decoupled from deaths is because if you, you know, for, for those of you who kind of like know what's coming, mm-hmm. uh, this is what the CDC community level system does a couple months later. And so um, in January, uh, there's a lot of discourse about this in particular. Monica Gandhi, again, um, does a New York Times op-ed. Um, why hospitalizations are now a better indicator of COVID's impact. Ashish Jha, still doing his work pro bono, tells ABC News in late December, quote, I no longer think infect generally should be the major metric. Obviously, we can continue to track infections among unvaccinated people because those people will end up in the hospital at the same rate, but we really have to focus on hospitalizations and deaths now. Um, yeah. We d- I so, think we talked about this on an episode before. We like, did. This oh, is yeah. bad. Bad, Several bad, times. bad. Yeah. I think on two or three episodes. Um, yeah, actually, well, the 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 one I would refer everyone to, actually, we're, where we also talked about um, one thing that I'm just going to kind of gloss over a little bit on, on this recording in particular, but is really worth noting. Um, we talked about both this idea that like death, uh, that cases and deaths were decoupled and the idea that of the distinction between hospitalized with COVID versus hospitalized for COVID being mainstreamed among liberals. Um, both of these things having kind of been like right wing talking points in the years prior to this. Um, we talked about that in January in an episode called vaxxed and collapsed. Um, but so anyway, uh, January was also perhaps importantly a big month in the Biden administration downplaying the pandemic on January 7th. Rochelle Walensky pretty much universally pissed off the disability community and almost everyone else who gives a shit about COVID or social murder by saying the following, quote, the overwhelming number of deaths over 75% occurred in people who had at least four comorbidities. So really, these are people who were unwell to begin with. And yes, really encouraging news in the context of Omicron. As we talked about on the show, uh, not only was this nonsense really penalizing people for having you know pre-existing conditions, it was also a comment based on an MMWR that had a laughably small sample size, not anything you should be citing in a public statement. Um, January 13th, Kamala Harris is asked on NBC's Today Show whether it's time to change up the COVID strategy. Harris responds with the immortal words that I would personally like etched on my tombstone <laughs> yes. quote, it is time for us to do what we have been doing <laughs> and that time is every day i can't every believe day, that was this it year it is also. time That's for <laughs> us to agree that there are things and tools that are available to us to slow this thing down <laughs> word salad that time is every day is so great that's my pep talk every morning i get up and look at myself in the mirror <laughs> and say it's time <laughs> for us to do what we have been doing and that time, and that is, every time is every day um, also on the 11th and 12th of January, um, Janet Woodcock, the FDA commissioner, uh, acting FDA commissioner and, uh, Anthony Fauci say, um, variations of essentially, yeah, sooner or later, everyone's going to get infected with COVID. That's, I mean, I, I don't, sorry, I don't mean to like gloss over that. That was actually like that level of resignation over transmission itself was actually rather novel for the administration yeah. uh, at the time and for administration officials to actually be saying outright. So, you know, that, that. It, that is important, even though at, at this point it's like, oh, yeah, I would almost expect 
Fauci to say that or I something. Would just yeah. like, well, they're telegraphing their strategy. Their yeah, strategy exactly. is that everyone's going to get infected. So it's like a descriptive statement. I would just like to make a note that, you know, the disability community, quote unquote, broader response to Walensky's statement that it was encouraging that people with pre-existing conditions were dying was initially like quite a robust uh, kind of online outrage. And what it resulted in was a seat at the table for a kind of, you know, meet cute where they would all talk about how Walensky needed to get better about communicating on disability. Yeah. And I would like to point out that like a year later after this has happened, right? Like Nothing changed. Actually, it's gotten worse. Very little has changed about the positioning of the CDC. Very little has changed about the public communication about, you know, what a pre-existing condition even means relative to COVID. And we see constantly this same framework of deaths being, you know, pulled from the future, which we have seen employed since 2020. This was not new to Walensky. And yet, you know, that that seat at the table, I would just like to point out, was an incredibly effective tactic at essentially completely putting a lid on the outrage that really exploded Mm -hmm. in response to this very obviously fucked up statement that was cruel and a gaffe probably but it it was indicative of like what the actual priorities are and what the actual calculations are that are being made at that level which is that you know what there are x many deaths baked in to the plan that we've like gone with and fortunately those people are not earning producing units at the prime of their life who are you know of greater economic valuation as human beings than the people who are dying. And that fundamentally like was just a tell, just kind of revealing, scratching the surface of just what the fundamental dynamic of the political economy of health in the United States is, and not just in the US, pretty much everywhere. But, you know, the the response, right, this kind of like, oh, well, we just need to sort of talk to Walensky instead of like continuing that response, it just completely fizzes out. Right. And that's what the point of like bringing people to the table is, is that it does end the outrage and it gives appearances and then you can move on and nothing changes. And it channels the effort in a different direction, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, So now keep in mind at this point in the pandemic by mid-January, around the time that Harris and others make these comments, there have now been a total of 850,000 deaths. Again, we have not yet reached 1 million COVID deaths uh, by the official count, but at this point, 432,000 of those deaths, more than half, uh, had now occurred under the Biden administration. So by mid-January, we like passed the, the transom of it being you know, literally more mortality burden for COVID under Biden. Congrats um, to the team. Prior. Um, <laughs> yeah, the biggest congrats to the team of all. Yeah. yeah. Mission accomplished. So uh, before the end of January into this comes two very interesting pieces of media released by the New York Times. One is, how did we fail so badly? Emily Oster and Ashish Jha on America's COVID response, um, which is an interview by Kara Swisher with economist, mommy blogger turned pandemic guru, Emily Oster and the man himself, Ashish Jha, still working for free, um, not yet hired by the Biden administration. I truly wish we had time to get into this interview in more depth. But among other things, Joss says Oster was right on schools, quote, more right than I have been. We clipped this interview in an episode called As Seen on TV that we recorded to mark the occasion of Jaw entering the White House. Um, the second bit is more consequential, though, um, and ultimately more relevant for our narrative, which is, of course, David Leonhardt's January 25th, 2022 newsletter to COVID Americas. 
By now, yeah. Leon Hart had already earned the title of, I think it was Abby who gave this title to him, actually, the title of Chief Propagandist for Back to Normal. <laughs> um, so Still in true. Two Covered Americas, Leon Hart worked with Morning Consult to gen up a poll on people's self-reported perception of their COVID risks. Leon Hart writes of his findings, quote, the poll results suggest that Americans have adopted at least some irrational beliefs about COVID. In our highly polarized country, many people seem to be allowing partisanship to influence their beliefs and sometimes to overwhelm scientific evidence. Millions of Democrats have decided that organizing their lives around COVID is core to their identity as progressives, even as <laughs> pandemic isolation and disruption are fueling mental health problems, drug overdoses, violent crime, etc. He lists all the stuff that, you know, these people always list. Car accidents. It's a remarkable disconnect between perception and reality. A majority of the boosted say they are worried about getting sick from COVID. In truth, riding in a car presents more danger to most of them than the virus does. Unquote. Um, this was a really was so I mean, wrong. Like just saying, I have a lot to say, and I feel like a lot of what I said about this, <laughs> I said on uh, a previous say. episode of the show, which you should yeah. definitely <laughs> go back and listen to. Um, David Leonhart and the Emergency of Normal. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, it's a good one. Yeah, I think you know, twenty twenty two is interesting because this, like, and again, this is something that I'm. Um, kind of interested in right now, you know, doing sort of my own like research and thinking about, but it's when this narrative about partisanship, you know, and partisan polarization being like kind of the reason why COVID was so bad really starts to emerge. And I want to point out that this explanation depends very, very heavily on surveys, just like this one that was commissioned for the New York Times where, you know, ordinary Americans are being contacted and, and surveyed about generally it's like their attitudes and behaviors around the pandemic. Typically, some information is collected about their partisan affiliation. And like the differences that shake out of that are um, true. You know, there are clear partisan like differences in beliefs, attitudes and behaviors around COVID. But I think what's kind of missing is some kind of coherent theory or causal mechanism that links the beliefs and the attitudes that people are endorsing in these surveys to, you know, COVID policy at the level of the structural determination of it, I guess, if that makes sense. So, you know, some of these things rely really heavily on a theory of like elite cues that, you know, people just respond <laughs> yeah. to cues from elite politicians and things like that. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's probably at least partially true, but I think that this like partisanship explanation starts to really take off right now in early 2022. And I think, you know, the the discursive function of it is to basically excuse and rationalize the inaction of the Biden administration, because, you know, yeah. it really casts people as just sort of passive recipients of cues, like passive uh, victims of the virus, which we know is like pretty undialectical way of thinking about things. Well, yeah, I mean. But the thing that always struck me as being particularly, you know, like duplicitous about the whole affair was, it, you know, again, it's not that people's you know ideologies aren't sort of shaping things. But, you know, at the most generous level, it's like, well, sure. But anybody who's looking at this series of problems, like why, for example, people don't get vaccinated. It's like <laughs> that is a multifactorial 
Uh, there's a mm-hmm. multifactorial explanation for that. And then the question it asks is like, why are you focusing on the one aspect of that multifactorial explanation that is arguably the hardest nut for government to crack? If, yeah, if, people's like, if, psychological like, perception. Yeah, what are you gonna what are you gonna do? Like a psyop? Like that's not I mean, that's just there's no it's the classic style of journalism where you're not focusing on variables that can actually be intervened in and focusing only on the most I don't know, uh, lacrimose uh, kind of explanations for these things. And beyond that, it's like like one thing that I did very easily in, in going back in, and looking at the data around that time was just looking at the extent to which vaccination rates were really low also in places that were a highly democratic areas, but where there are a lot of low income people who don't have health insurance, don't have regular routine contact with the doctor or pharmacy. Like it's Again, focusing on the one thing that is the hardest thing to do a policy intervention on. Well, and everything at the expense of class, too. It, it, well, exactly. Everything at the expense of class, but also everything at the expense of what exactly can our, you know, government like do about this. I don't want to discount like the things that are wrong with the framing. Right. Because like obviously what's wrong with the framings that Leonhardt used and what's wrong with these ideas matters but in some sense it also doesn't matter like the details don't matter because the message itself is like something that's delivered to people first thing in the morning that many people read right when they wake up and the message is actually not anything about partisanship or the virus itself it's to not care and not worry most importantly and to maintain and resume economic activity and those these like inaccuracies in a way are less the argument itself. It's not the message. It's like the justification. It's the supporting evidence. So in a sense, it like almost doesn't matter kind of what facts he's pulling because the point still gets across to people in the headline that shows up in their inbox that even if they don't read the email, they're seeing first thing in the morning every day. Like, I mean, I I don't want to put like too much emphasis on like the power of of media to like shape people's reality. But at the same time, like there is a very, I don't know, there, there we're, we're willing to like tell people that they can cure their disease, like, or cure their MECFS by like waking up in the morning and having a fucking gratitude practice. So in, in a same sense, like these kinds of ideas about like, what is the kind of tone setting for someone's reality? Like, I think that just the medium of Leonhard at all has had a huge impact on, on shaping like, what people's sort of general understanding of, of risk is and how risk yeah. should be interpreted. And that, totally. that itself is like kind of the, the actual point of any of it at all. Yeah. Like, this newsletter in particular, the accompanying daily episode um, and the, the follow-up, the, we need, which is called uh, we need to talk about COVID part two, where instead of interviewing David Leonhardt about this, Michael Barbaro interviews Anthony Fauci and practically begs him on mic to end mask mandates himself. Yeah. Um, the you know the point is this uh, this and the accompanying daily episode spread very widely, end up being pretty influential. Leonhardt, like others at the point, walks pretty close up to the point of saying that masking and other mitigations don't do anything. And in this sense. He is, um, at least over the course of the beginning of this year, a really good signpost for, or a sort of vanguard, I guess, of the the sort of rhetorical moves that allow liberals to basically fully give up on masking by, you know, March or March or April, as we'll talk about more also in that um, the the masking episode that's upcoming. Um, but in, in any in any case, 
This is also important to note just because it comes pretty much immediately before uh, the events of early February, which we're about to get into, um, where we start to see some of the very last state mask mandates falling. So that's January. Um, Again, some 69,986 people died of COVID in January. Because we know now what we didn't then, uh, we have that broken up by vaccination status as well. So of those about 70,000 deaths, 42% were fully vaccinated. Of that 70,000, 12% were not just vaccinated, but boosted. Um, So assuming that's nationally representative, more than 29,000 vaccinated people died of COVID just in January of this year. This brings us to February. Uh, So buckle up. (laughs) February is the month that the final remains of state mask mandates went away. Um, As we're going to talk about in the companion episode to this one on how liberals gave up on masking, uh, it's important to note that masking was already gone in most of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, There was still a federal transportation mask mandate in place for stuff like planes and public transport. Um, But as we'll see, the time on that was numbered as well. But among states themselves, there were huge holdouts who still had mask mandates either at the state level or in schools, among them large states mostly run by Democratic Party politicians. Perhaps most importantly, when we talk about how mask mandates were completely undone in 2022, often we talk about something that we'll get into in just a second that happened at the end of the month, which is the institution of the CDC's new community level system for mask recommendations. And I want to complicate the narrative uh, of how we think about that just slightly to show that the community level system and its introduction was sort of, I guess, a huge nail in the coffin, really, of mass mandates. Uh, But that coffin was already largely sealed by states. So at the beginning of February, with cases still enormously high and some 18,000 people dead from COVID in the first week of February alone, States started either peeling back mass mandates or announcing that they would shortly do so, starting with New Jersey, California, and New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Illinois, and others would join shortly. All of these states announced that they would drop their mass mandates around the same time, um, around like February 7th and 8th. The reason this was more or less coordinated is made clear in contemporaneous reporting. So on February 8th, New York Times uh, characterized what had happened this way, quote, The easing of New York's pandemic restrictions on businesses comes as Democratic-led states from New Jersey to California have announced similar moves this week in a loosely coordinated effort that is the result of months of public health planning, back-channel discussions, and political focus groups that began in the weeks after the November election. It was Governor Philip D. Murphy of New Jersey who began the effort last fall, weeks after he was stunned by the energy of right-wing voters in his blue state, who nearly ousted him from office in what was widely expected to be an easy re-election campaign. Arranging a series of focus groups across the state to see what they had missed, Mr. Murphy's advisors were struck by the findings. Across the board, voters shared frustrations over public health measures, a sense of pessimism about the future, and deep desire to return to some sense of normalcy. Then, Omicron hit, delaying any easing of restrictions. But slowly, as case rates began to fall again in January, again, relatively to already high number, conversations between Mr. Murphy's aides and senior officials in other states began to pick back up. No actions could be taken until the virus eased its grip, the officials acknowledged. Um, And again, let me remind you, this actively all happened around February 7th and 8th, where like the the week prior, 18,000 people had died of COVID just that week. Um, And then here's the kicker. 
Again, this is, I think, often left out of the narratives about how masking ended. Uh, Quote, last week, the states took their concerns to the White House. As members of the National Governors Association gathered for a meeting in the East Room, several asked President Biden to provide clear guidelines for states to move from the crisis footing of a pandemic to a recognition that the virus was here to stay and that it could be managed with that completely upending daily life. So just after this, on February 9th, the New York Times ran the following headline. We are not there yet. As states drop mask rules, the CDC stands firm. <laughs> yeah, was, to anyone who knows what's about to happen next, I would call that a laugh line. Um, uh, in that story, they essentially say that the White House is concerned that governors have, quote unquote, gotten ahead of President Biden on masking. Um, here's a very interesting uh, couple Lest of paragraphs. Not be left behind. <laughs> here's, an, here's a very interesting uh, little snippet from this article uh, considering that the community level system and the change on the map is upcoming uh, quote, public health experts agree that school mass mandates should not last forever, but are divided about whether it is time to drop them. The CDC's current masking recommendations advise state and local officials to enact indoor masking policies in areas of the country where transmission is high. A color-coded map on the agency's website shows the entire country in red. 99% of all counties are in a high-transmission zone, a point Dr. Walensky underscored on Wednesday. The public is understandably confused, unquote. Um, <laughs> say that again. Yeah. So, you know, again, this is kind of... Po- the reason I say this is it's like it's pointing to, oh, look, the map's entirely red, not as a problem of the fact that the map is red and transmission is all over the fucking place. But as a problem that the map is red and a bunch of states, you know, want to do away with mask mandates. And so can you, can you give us a little pastel colored map, I guess, please. Uh, Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, it, one thing that I just want to note, this article also mentions that they start consulting outside advisors, including the team uh, of Zeke Emanuel and company who had released in January, a pathway to the new normal document uh, where, among other things, they argue that we should think not of COVID as a crisis itself, but of the sort of basket of flu, COVID and RSV uh, as a as you know part of a collection of respiratory viruses. And they also recommend to the White House at that point that their metrics for masking and other COVID protections focus specifically on hospitalizations in a kind of, you know, this is how I think some of those, you know, pieces of discourse from earlier in this timeline transform a little bit into, uh, into policy. Not to say that like, you know, Emmanuel and team are the ones who did this specifically, like the Biden administration was clearly looking for something or whatever, and they might've done this anyway. It's just that there is reporting saying that they at least did say, Hey, you should try out you know, yeah, I mean, hospitalization. I think yeah. what's important to like remember is like the way that reproduction works is not like ever linear. It's a kind of churn, right? And the stuff gets put out there and the kind of knowledge production happens and it becomes, you know, perceived as a topic of, of broad discussion. And then there's this kind of idea of like consensus or acceptance and rejection of the idea that like becomes part of that discussion. And then you do see it echo and again churn into institutions and into the behavior of of various institutions because ultimately what is going on is like a discussion about value of human life actually at the end of the day and the the value of preventing sickness and that 
is really ultimately then translated into like behavior, but that there is this process of sort of, you know, again, like it just being out there reproducing and sort of growing and building a kind of momentum behind it as an idea that happens like independently of any one person's actions. Like this is just like how people act. Like this is just like how society works in some capacity. Like, so it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people like will hear kind of the way that these connections like arise and think a kind of direct causal relationship instead of just thinking about it in terms of building a kind of base of consensus a, and a kind of building a kind hegemony, of yeah 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 exactly yeah. There, there's an old lines governments puzzle before they power which doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that they think about how to solve how best to solve the problem you're thinking about before mm-hmm. they act but it's like you have to test out sometimes you don't know how far you can go yeah. Right? right. You have to test things out. And uh, but I do think this is like, I mean, by this point, if the authority or autonomy of like public health institutions in the United States is predicated on their ability to like set an agenda and do like moral suasion of some kind. Now it does seem that they are in like, I don't know the precise, I, I have no precise theoretical formulation about this, but it's like. Oh, yeah, it's wholly reactive. Any autonomy, you know, whatever. It's not like people are in there turning the dials, but there is a level of reactivity uh, that is very obvious from from, I think, the the sort of like timeline here. Yeah, definitely. Um, So by February 25th, um, the CDC would announce and institute its community level system. We'll get to that in just a second. But a couple of things that happened that are key right before that. February 21st, uh, I don't know when the conversation is recorded, but uh, at least on February 21st, Andy Slavitt releases an episode of his podcast um, interviewing uh, CDC director Rochelle Walensky, in which she says of masking, quote, I just know people are tired. The scarlet letter of this pandemic is the mask. It may be painless. It may be easy, but it's inconvenient. It's annoying. I'm... (laughs) mimicking how she actually delivers the line and it reminds us that we're in the middle of a pandemic oh there you go reminds us yeah um That's big, big key thing here this is how you remind me <laughs> <laughs> um i give all this context <clears throat> i give all this context including the stuff about the governors uh in part because i think There is one thing that a lot of people tend to point to as like the smoking gun on masking, which is a letter sent by Biden's polling firm Impact Research on February 24th, telling Biden in no uncertain terms to, quote, take the win on COVID and roll back COVID protections. Um, (laughs) What win? Oh, my God. (laughs) Make the win you want to take. Yeah. Right. This is how you do PR. This is literally how you do it. Phil Phil mentioned um, what's the what's the line government's puzzle before they power. I mean, there are a lot of ways to put a puzzle together, including cutting the pieces. Right. (laughs) So so, uh, anyway, I I don't. And again, I don't want to downplay the significance of the impact research letter because it definitely is you know important and it signals certainly i think it 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 certainly telegraphs the way that basically after the point of about mm, mid-march the biden administration takes every opportunity it can to not talk about covid at all as much as it possibly you know can manage to but i will say that you know i think the fact that again 
only eight states had statewide mask mandates, you know, by the beginning of 2022. And this action that we know from governors, this wasn't a simple direct exercise of like the polling firm said, fuck off with masking or whatever. At this point, the Biden administration was actually trying to play catch up with a bunch of other, you know, basically Democratic officials who had gone full on like anti-COVID protection. But so uh, we're getting to the end of February. And what that means, of course, is the introduction of the CDC's community level system. Can't believe we're, you know, it's like so much up until yeah. this point. That like is, I said, is, it, it, it's dense at the beginning and then it'll. Well, no, but I, I mean, it's it's really laying out. This is actually so wonderful, Artie, the way you've laid this out, because it shows so completely the like knowledge production required in order to manufacture the consent for this decoupling that was floated yeah you know initially i mean that's the goal right this this is the year in the sociological production of the end of the pandemic after all i mean and you're good at showing your work you know but (laughs) but it it is like it's good that we took the time to walk through this quickly because even having done a lot of review of our coverage from that part of the year to prepare for this episode, like thinking about this episode that we're recording now for the last two months, like even so, I couldn't totally get my mind around the first two months of the year, right? Yeah. Leading yeah. up to the community it's level changes. Yeah. Partially <laughs> also because like the the community level changes began a kind of it was like standing on a river bank as it's like flooding and you start to like feel the ground get pulled out from underneath you as like the river's getting wider kind of yeah. sensation. Well, one of the difficulties of doing this kind of work and of, and I think one of the difficulties that pretty much everyone who has been an advocate on COVID has had is that there is so much stuff to refute, mm-hmm. push back on. There has been for years, it is endless and frankly in this concentrated period we've been looking at of like you know let's say the end of november until like now we're only in in we're looking still at february but like uh through basically the end of march um it is just almost even more concentrated than usual and it really is i think like the final end cap basically of like this is where by the end of march as you'll see it's just like so much has been foreclosed on mm-hmm. that it's no wonder that we have spent much of the last year so deeply on the back foot and with so many people even like fighting amongst themselves about this. Right. Oh, totally. And I think like the, the community level system, like it's <laughs> I'm many, it's interesting that you used like a description that involved water be because like every like metaphorical image that's coming to my mind involves like <laughs> a high water mark or, you know, water cresting <laughs> or something. But I think the community level, like the the introduction of the community level system also represented a serious maneuver to take information out of people's hands or to, you know, to to hide information to like reduce the amount of, of COVID information that's out there. And there's there's a bit of cognitive dissonance involved in that because on the one hand you know the administration is really pushing this personal responsibility line you know like you need to evaluate your risk you need to make the right choices for you to like protect your health on the other hand the information that you would use to inform that kind of personal risk analysis is being removed and i think like throughout the rest of the year it feel at least to me and hopefully i'll feel differently after we go through you know the rest of the timeline but it feels like the rest of the year after the institution of the community level system 
everything just kind of fragmented and spun off because there was no longer, you know, all the bad shit, all the bad stuff that the U.S. did, that both presidential administrations did. At least there was some kind of even though, you know, there were problems with with testing and with case reporting and things, there was some kind of like central source of information about the pandemic that was very easy to understand. When that went away, I feel like the whole discourse just kind of like fractured and got really confusing. It became very hard to follow what was going on. It became very hard to evaluate the statements that public figures were making because it was hard to tell, you know, like it was really consequential. To use an analogy, to use an analogy, it's like, Okay, everybody knows there's problems with the unemployment rate as a number. You know, it doesn't take into account certain kinds of reasons why people might not be in work or or whatever. But like that number, imperfect as it is, drives coverage of the quote unquote employment situation, which then around the time of the thing coming out, we we get some sense of how people are doing. Like, imagine if you replace that with like a sort of vibes based (laughs) unemployment check um, and, and that's sort of, I think it had the kind of effect you might expect it to have here, which is that like, you can no longer cover something, uh, quite as easily. I mean, you, you have to draw more on perhaps anecdotal things or other patched together, um, other kinds of uh, information, but you don't get this kind of clear narrative maybe in the way that you had before. I mean, I, I specifically used the, the metaphor of like a flood water situation because I'll never forget this very uh, experienced and terrifying publicist once told me that like good PR is like a flood. Everyone thinks the water is rising because of the rain, but it's actually the debris that's getting thrown in that's going to kill <laughs> oh people oh my God. and that's yeah. making the water level rise that no one ever sees because it's it just goes in and it raises the volume and the flood is seen as a force in and of itself and therefore self-evident. And that that was like how good PR was supposed to work. And it's really come back to me a lot this year. Like, (laughs) but I think it, you know, it is a it is a good metaphor, not in terms of like destruction, but in terms of like what we perceive as being causal, not always being um, the whole picture. Right. And I think that that was sort of like this whole year we we really started out with like a deep debate about like what data meant and what data was good and what data was bad and what data had value and what data was making us sick psychologically. Like with all the people saying that, you know, folks were like addicted to lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Like this was paranoia. And we ended the year with like no data, like in the dark. Right. And so this, this is, this is what has to happen to make that transformation possible. Absolutely. And so we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves basically. But um, I, I think uh, all the things that you guys are saying are, are right, which is by the time, you know, we're, we're at this point in the timeline only about a month out from what I think we start talking about on the show as I think the term that I use is a narrative vacuum around, yeah. around mm-hmm. COVID yeah. um, after this like massive flurry of regulatory changes and, and activity. Um, so Winding the clock back a little bit, though, <laughs> February 25th, um, again, CDC updates its recommendation guidelines for what counties should require masking or not. Introducing the community level system, as we note at the time, uh, the previous system, which was based all around actual COVID cases, um, was called the transmission level or community transmission level. So they 
literally cut the word transmission out. And we've been to greater or lesser extent talking about this almost all year. Um, But it's important to restate what it is exactly what they do. So previously, the CDC made masking recommendations based on COVID transmission. Transmission, full stop. Because as Abby mentioned before, uh, to die from COVID, you have to first have a case of COVID. Uh, because new cases are what leads to deaths. New cases are also what leads to new cases of long COVID. It's not complicated. Um, The new system changes all of that. Uh, I'll go with a simple explanation first. Um, So until they change their masking guidelines, their transmission map, which is the visualization of how prevalent COVID spread is and where masks would be recommended, was a bright red map. It still is, actually. Um, You can still see the old map if you try. It's just not used for guidance itself anymore. Uh, But the old map was basically just like, because COVID transmission is so high, it was practically an outline of the U.S. filled in all red. Under the new guidelines, the map immediately turned a discomforting shade of pastel green. All of a sudden, masking was no longer recommended by the CDC in 75% of counties. Again, almost no states had mask mandates at that point anyway. But before the CDC made this change, those states were all basically going against CDC guidance, right? Um, the CDC basically changed its guidelines to say, yeah, sure, okay. A slightly more technical explanation is this. Um, so the CDC used to declare a county high COVID risk, meaning masks should be worn uh, if transmission was happening there at a level of 100 cases per 100,000 people. Under the new metric, COVID cases themselves do not even count toward the calculation until there are twice that amount, 200 cases per 100,000 people. Um, In other words, under the new system, you can have twice the rate of COVID transmission that would previously have qualified as high in the area where you live, and your area will still be counted as low. Low. This Uh, new substantially higher case threshold uh, is used really only as a modifier for the principal metrics they are now taking into account, which are the following two. One, percentage of occupied hospital beds uh, in the county. Um, And two, rate of new COVID hospital admissions. Um, So not just rhetorically, but in policy, every COVID crank got their fucking wish which is COVID cases were enormously deprioritized in favor of looking at hospitalization, which of course needs to be said um, this at this point anyway, like the CDC as an agency is and can only, you know, issue these recommendations. Now the Biden administration can take those recommendations and like use its office to actually try and convince like state and local governments to put mask mandates in place But essentially, as we have seen and as we're talking about, they're actively doing the thing in the process in reverse. Mm -hmm. States and local governments have removed mask mandates and the Biden administration has swooped in now through the CDC with the new community level system to rubber stamp this and to say, yeah, actually, you know what? In fact, fuck it, whatever. We Mm -hmm. won't even recommend masks in 75 percent of these counties anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, immediately after this, like there's it was like a day. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was like immediately last the last scraps of anything that was like still remaining other than really the transportation mask mandate. Um, pretty much all of that uh, disappeared overnight. There were a, a bunch of news reports all really specifically touting. Whereas, you know, as a, as a you know general principle, journalism or journalists or whatever could have looked at this and said, you know, CDC sociologically produces end of pandemic or like, mm-hmm. you know, CDC changes map to make every like fills in map green. 
instead everything was covered basically as like you know cdc now says like it's fine actually 75 percent of and and honestly i spoke to a lot of journalists on background and for interviews after this happened because we were obviously uh really pissed pissed and posting about it a lot and trying to help people understand just how fucked up this switch was and what was not being considered and it was really telling to see how like of all of those conversations that I had in each one of them, I was very firm about saying what we need to do is go back to the old system immediately and say, you know what? I'm so sorry. We're not using this. This is not acceptable. We can't use this for X, Y, Z reasons. In only one of those conversations, like did that demand make it to air or to mention at all? You know, like the, even the people that were reaching out to me to get a dissenting opinion on the CDC recommendations mm-hmm. made no room like in their political imaginary in terms of how they were framing their piece for going back. Yeah. For going back. And I think that's yeah. really important. And I'm not trying to like shame people, but I am saying that like that was the the psychological sort of framing of of what the capacity for response was going to be was like we're we're opening room for for criticism here but like we don't feel or see room for anything else even to the point of like the whole conversation i ended up having with ed young in may or june was like he was like well i don't see how we go from here and i'm like well we certainly don't give up because that's fucking (laughs) like doing what they want you know so like you figure out a way to keep going no matter what because it's not over. Right. But there was this this sense of like the Biden administration had taken their win and this was like done, done, done. Yeah. Um, and importantly to, you know, part of the rhetoric of this and how it was positioned in the first place was as like a um, a- as so many of these things often were like almost every time that COVID protections have been undone, there is always the line, which is never true and has never happened and has like rarely if ever happened, which is like, oh, well, we can always go back or, right. or whatever. We're, we're going to do this. Sure. And then when cases go back or if there's a new variant that's really scary or whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll put them back. Or yeah, but not if you're not September. reporting cases, you can never right. go back well, right. if you're not collecting that information. There, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's also like, but even if you are, I mean, there's, I don't think. But I mean, I I don't think that there's any major, major example of where you've seen like a huge reversion point. Uh, no, in, in fact, in there's a lot of counter examples. Been, it's that all been, we're yeah. we've, said this, <laughs> we've said this since the day that government, the first state government started putting out its reopening plan. The yeah. first thing that we noticed is 2020 was there's no real clear reverse metric. This is just one, a one way. What I was saying, though, is that um, characteristically, very literally, this is what they said. So in, in announcing this, Walensky says in the CDC telebriefing, quote, we want to give people a break from things like mask wearing when our levels are low and then have the ability to reach for them again should things get worse in the future. Um, noting also some people might choose to take extra precautions regardless of what level their community is in and that we should be, you know, respectful of that. Can you imagine if anyway. I use like my immunosuppressants in the same way? Well, my blood levels are good, so I'm just going to stop taking them. And once I have inflammation again, I'll go back on methotrexate <laughs> to, to be immunosuppressed, right? Like, yeah. you know, no, no 
conceptualization of like prophylaxis at all in in Rochelle's world. Um, so that that brings us to the end of February. Sixty thousand three hundred and fifty one COVID deaths um, happened in February in the U.S. Forty uh, percent of that sixty thousand were vaccinated. Fifteen percent of them were were boosted too. Um, which brings us to March. We're going to talk more about this probably in the episode about masking, but suffice it to say that the CDC throwing up its hands over masking had some profound social effects. Um, one of the things it does is give a lot of cover to pundits to be more extreme in some of their pronouncements. Um, here's a stone cold David Leonhardt classic from March 9th, for example. <laughs> Headline, do COVID precautions work? Subhead, yes, but they haven't made a big difference. So no, um, is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, guideline change also had some other effects. There become a lot of articles that are similar to this one from March 13th in NPR. Uh, some people aren't ready to stop masking, but it can be tough to go against the grain. Again, there's like this whole, we'll get into this in the other episode, but there's this whole raft of basically self-help. Like it's okay if you're the only person left in the office with a mask on things. (laughs) Um, anyway, in any case, dialing it back though, to the very beginning of March, uh, the Biden administration, um, wastes little time really triumphing the CDC community level system as a, a big shift on March 1st, Biden does his state of the union address, um, maskless, of course, to a room full of also maskless people over 70 that we collectively call Congress. Um, Politico's headline for this is, (laughs) thanks. Um, Politico's headline for this is quote, the masks come off at Biden's state of the union address in the speech itself. Biden touted the CDC's community level guideline change as one of his administration's accomplishments saying, quote, Just a few days ago, the CDC issued new mask guidelines. Under these new guidelines, most Americans in most of the country can now be mask-free. Also adding, we can end the shutdown of schools and businesses. We have the tools we need. That same day, the Biden administration (laughs) released an an updated version of its national COVID-19 preparedness plan. It was sold as a bold new agenda for how the White House wanted to move forward. Um, We reviewed it on the show, of course, and found it pretty lacking. Um, (laughs) Sorry, that's an understatement. We found it miserable. It was so bad. Um, (laughs) Here's the Washington Post headline on this. White House unveils plan to move America past COVID crisis says shutdowns no longer necessary. Um, So what was in this plan, right? Uh, First of all, this is our first introduction of test to treat. Uh, The program of making Paxlovid available to be prescribed at the pharmacy, which as a matter of policy is sort of a continuation of like how they were already relying on major pharmacy chains such as CVS and Walgreens to be your first line of public health administration on COVID for the center of civic life. I mean, honestly, like our critique of that move was so terrifyingly on point. It's been the most depressing thing to hear from pharmacists and people who are pharmacy workers to be like, this has been exactly the disaster that you guys said it was going to be. Like we are understaffed. We are underpaid. We are overscheduled. We're never like having our medications in on time. And now we have all these unmasked sick people coming straight to the pharmacy where the like high risk people are also coming to get their prescriptions. And also the HVAC in the store is like so broken that, you know, this is like 
Yeah. Not not even to mention the spatial access issues and the fact that like so many people aren't even near one of these facilities or even the burdens in using this fucking s- test to treat system. Well, I'll use a personal example. <laughs> uh, last week, last week, B and I both tested positive for COVID. We're still recovering as we're doing this. Don't worry. None of us record this in the same room together. I mean, B and I are together because we live together, but like whatever. But so when we tested positive, we both tried to get Paxlovid. My insurance denied doing it through test to treat. So I had to do it through my doctor. So like, you know, whatever, clearly the program's working great. Anyway, to, <laughs> to continue, um, the plan also straight up says the following, uh, quote, we look to a future when Americans no longer fear lockdowns, shutdowns, and our kids not going to school. It's a future when the country relies on the powerful layers of protection we have built and invest in the next generation of tools to Which stay ahead of the virus. Which we are shedding presently right. as fast as we yes. can. Yeah, we'll get to right. that. We'll get to that too. But, well, but I mean, this, no, but it's no, but it's to pee running in from playing in the snow. No, but it, it is almost hilarious because they're touting layers of protection oh, sure. when one of the most basic layers of protection is masking. masking. And then yeah. the right, let me hit you with another quote from the plan quote, uh. masks have been a critical tool to protect ourselves, but they have a time and a place. Some might unquote. say during a pandemic so, is a pretty so good like, time and place. Yeah. I think I even- they say, by the way, do they say what time and place that is? Yeah. Right. Well, it certainly was not <laughs> in their fall plan because their yeah. fall plan to just jog everyone's memory did not mention masking at all, even yeah. though that would be theoretically the time and the place for them to mention it again. Yeah. Just saying. But this is sort of when we, I think around this time is when we sort of uh, began picking up on this um, and it's it's not new by any means, uh, but the the particular imaginary that emerged about the state and its ability, well, and I guess you could say the state society linkage and its ability to deploy a range of methods uh, to to combat the pandemic. Meanwhile, it's like okay, you've got all of these pillars, and then various things that the administration is doing rhetorically or in terms of policy is just like knocking down each of the pillars over the subsequent months. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, uh, and to that point, um, I mean, one of the things that they say as a goal in this plan is to, quote, support broad access to free testing across the country, which, you know, again, I probably don't have to tell listeners this, and we've alluded to this plenty, but, you know, that's something you should pay attention to for the rest of the timeline as it unfolds, because they do Spoiler the opposite alert. of that yeah. um, and dismantled a lot of testing infrastructure and and or just let a lot of it get dismantled by states to, you know, just uh, with, without intervening or doing anything really. Um, speaking of testing, though, um, this is also when something emerges that would really become a feature of the rest of the year, uh, which is Biden's rather weak attempt to get Congress to continue to fund the covid response. This was already like a little bit of an ongoing thing at, at this point because you already had people like, you know, Republican Congress people and senators saying, you know, we're not going to like, why would we fund the COVID response? The pandemic is over, blah, 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 blah. But the Biden administration finally gets around to basically submitting the formal request for funding for about $30 billion around the time of the State of the Union. Like in the State of the Union address, uh, Biden asked for that sp- that figure specifically from Congress to continue paying for vaccines and therapeutics, uh, as well as COVID care for the uninsured. Of course, very abruptly, there's 
pushback to this we're not going to go into the like entire timeline of that yeah. part of it because it's fucking interminable this was like the worst part of the whole covid narrative for this entire <laughs> right. year this funding bullshit but like suffice it to say that literally two days later like march 3rd um biden cuts the covid uh funding request um trying to negotiate essentially comes down um, to yeah it's like what is it like just over 20 uh at that point also clearly at this point it's made obvious that um this was so poorly planned for that essentially by march 22nd unceremoniously the uninsured sorry the, the program to cover care for uninsured people covered care for uninsured people just stops accepting claims just completely yep. out of funds stops accepting claims i don't even think that gets much coverage uh it didn't I mean, no you know, like there, there's there's some like strongly worded letters from the national association of city and county health officials all of this but it's really not that much coverage and the argument that biden is sort of making at this point is like we have the tools and you know the the best thing he can say is like we have the tools but you haven't funded them so yeah. you like he's at, at the very least at this point, he's saying like, oh, yeah, we need to extend these things that will pay pay attention because that will change mm-hmm. uh, in a way the way that that's sort of he, he's still saying funded. But the the rhetorical force of that will will mutate by, say, September. Yeah. Well, it also becomes like there it, it becomes a convenient foil for the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. They're just constantly pointing to Congress totally. and saying like they're the bad guy um, anyway. So. The other thing that this does, which is very interesting, is it kicks off the most explicit comments so far about um, pushing COVID treatment and vaccines and and types of care fully to the private market. Mm -hmm. Um, Previously, we have talked about this. Um, We were in June of uh, of this year, literally the first to point out that Ashish Jha had said completely unprompted in a live stream event with Bob Wachter that the Biden administration was exploring how to push COVID drugs and vaccines to the private market by 2023. Um, And that didn't really get coverage until like August when he said it again. And when they started doing HHS regulatory activity, how many views did that video have when you found it? When I watched the video, there were like, I don't know. It was somewhere between 500 and a thousand views. There are a lot more sickos. now, but like all sickos. <laughs> yeah. Um, Perverts. The things I do to myself for you, the listener. <laughs> but the, um, but, but so uh, regardless of this, it's interesting going back into this timeline because I'm not going to belabor this too much, but uh, longtime listeners may recall a time in March when we kind of made fun of this exchange that had happened in a, um, White House press briefing with a uh, quote unquote unnamed administration official, which from reading the the transcript and knowing the way that he talks, I'm like 99 percent sure is Jeff Zients, mm. uh, who was still employed <laughs> at the time at the White House uh, or was still COVID czar at the White House at the time. Um, there's this like press briefing um, that is not, you know, not released um, as a, as a video, like usually or whatever, I think it's just like a, a, a recorded phone call that's transcribed where Tamara Keith of NPR and, uh, Zeke Miller of the AP essentially ask like, why can't just insurance do it? Like, I mean, why can't we just treat it like every, all, like all other things of, um, that we do with healthcare in this country? Like, why does the federal government have to be involved? And this is where we get some of the most explicit commentary so far, where again, pretty sure it's Jeff Zients says, um, this is March 15th quote. Yeah, it's a good question. 
look in our preparedness plan, we outlined that we want to explore in the future the ability to transition some of COVID treatments and potentially other tools to the insurance-based market, just like other healthcare, unquote. He's referring to the plan, the like Mar- the plan that they released early in March that I was just talking about. Um, I've read through that plan. It's not as explicit as what he just said um, about <laughs> yeah, that. Plan, so that's is, interesting. Is this the one that's known as Plan Nine from United <laughs> Health? <laughs> <God>. <laughs> but but so I, I just want to want to note that because so that's in terms of timeline. That's March. You know, by June, Ashish Jaw gives a timetable for that transition, which is that's the first time in Mar- er, in June rather that we hear the year 2023 as the idea of transitioning to private market. But by this point, they're already starting to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so presuming that that senior administration official was science, it turns out this is one of the last major acts science would take while COVID's are on March 17th. Ashish jaw is officially announced as the new hire for the job. Uh, we did a big episode on this called as seen on TV. Um, our big takeaway being that, Jaws brought in basically to make everyone feel good about the Biden administration, that all the uppity progressives were, you know, mad that Jeff Science was a private equity guy and had no public health background despite running the COVID response. And so in comes the dean of a public health school, Ashish Jaw, the guy who's been playing a doctor on TV for the entirety <laughs> of the pandemic yeah. uh, to smooth things over. A couple other things I'm just going to gloss over. This is also like, I can't believe we don't even have time to talk about like McKinsey and company coining the term mm-hmm. economic endemicity to explain <laughs> uh, the endemicity discourse, which is bubbling at the time. People are talking about what endemicity means and it's all bullshit. One last other interesting thing is March 21st, um, Fauci publishes a paper in the Journal of Infectious Diseases titled The Concept of Classical Herd Immunity May Not Apply to COVID-19. I won't get into that because uh, we don't really have time for it. But the timing of that sure is interesting. And I think, you know, we, we talk about that and what it means in an episode called Herd Immunity in May. So that's March. Uh, about 30,000 people die of COVID in March. 43% of those, or about 12,000 people, were fully vaccinated. And further, 20% of those 30,000 deaths were in people who were boosted. This brings us to April. But let's stay on breakthrough deaths for a second, since I was just mentioning that. As I've mentioned before, in April, the CDC finally updates one of its data sets that had been dormant for months, um, tracking deaths by vaccination status in 27 jurisdictions. I know it was dormant for months because literally I had a calendar (laughs) reminder uh, to refresh the page once a week, (laughs) which by April I had almost like completely given up on. And so when it was finally updated, I actually missed it at first, but thankfully a Kaiser Family Foundation report came out about the data and we pretty quickly turned around uh, and did an episode about it called Breakthroughs. We got so much hate for that episode. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, like not so that much. episode itself. Ironically, our most controversial release ever, <laughs> well, maybe. Right, like not, not really the episode itself, but like the existence of the episode really pissed right. off a lot of liberals, I would say. Um, it would not be possible really to exaggerate how much it did this. I mean, Ben Mazur yelled at me saying the mere mention of breakthrough deaths was like inspiring vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the dumbest thing um, I've ever heard. Like, yeah. offense fully intended. Yeah. And I think the really important thing to note about this is that basically up until April... The only arguments that we really had against the pandemic of the unvaccinated line were rhetorical, right? Um, We could point to the many anecdotal cases of breakthrough deaths or the inconsistent handful of states that reported them. 
and we did that. But this was the first systematic look at how common it was. Um, and for us, I think it was a pretty frightening validation of something we've been saying for a long time, which is the vaccine-only strategy pursued by the Biden administration just does not work, as we mentioned before. We need the layered protection. We need layered protections, just like the masks that the Biden administration had said, you know, in March that there was quote a time and a place for. <laughs> but the thing, the really, I think, tragic thing that none of us knew yet, um, because when that uh, data set was released in April, it only covered data up until February, is that April was also the first month where a majority of people who were dying of COVID were fully vaccinated. And not by a small margin either. 59% of COVID deaths in April were people who were vaccinated. And this means that literally while liberals were yelling at us about the base rate fallacy and how we were undermining Dark Brandon's amazing COVID job, more than (laughs) half of people dying of COVID were vaccinated in the U.S. at that point. Even as, you know, Brandon himself had done so much to undo masking in the U.S. and to take layers out of that layered protection strategy. (laughs) Anyway, this brings us to the actual major development of April, um, which is April 18th. uh, A federal judge struck down TSA's transportation mandate, one of the last remaining major mask mandates. What did the Biden administration do in response? Did they say, we're going to fight this? Nope. At first, they just dithered. They just called the ruling uh, disappointing, took the opportunity to essentially stress to people you could still make an individual decision to mask on an airplane or a bus if, like, you really want to. Before the administration can even decide to appeal it, discourse kicks up that it's for the best and that it was long past time to undo the transportation mask mandate. David Leonhardt writes a whole fucking newsletter entry about how fun it was to fly across the country unmasked. Oh my god, I forgot about that. It's like... (laughs) actually so psychologically harrowing to fly like i've flown a fair (laughs) amount this year and every time it's like a horrible nightmare and i'm anxious about it for like weeks ahead of time so like i i completely can't understand like i can't even understand where david leonhardt's coming from abby that's that's because you have to mask that's because you mask though abby if you didn't then yeah that's true if i didn't you know (laughs) um it's just your anxiety talking you should just i'm addicted to being scared of covid it's true suck it up and recognize that if you don't get infected with covid like 16 billion times your your immune system muscles are not gonna be swole (laughs) they're gonna be little flimsy abby just can't atrophied pieces of shit and you're gonna have no immune system and uh, I don't know what else would Vinaya Prasad say. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, remember this? The gridiron dinner. Oh my god! Yes! Yeah. Fuck, I forgot all about the gridiron dinner. I forgot dinner. about that. Yeah. And it it's was funny such a how, big deal. Wow. It was a huge deal. It was fun. It's like funny to think about now because... Compare and contrast the volume of unmasked events that we've seen. Absolutely. It was still... a. I mean, it's interesting, right, though, because like in April, it's still a scandal that there's a super spreader event that happens among fucking Washington's elite. There are by the end of it, something like 70 or 80 confirmed cases. And that's not even counting the staff who still any staff who may have gotten infected at the gridiron dinner still unknown because they never released information on that so who knows what the actual number was not to mention obviously people who then infect whatever you know infections like cascading off of those infections from the gridiron dinner etc cetera, etc cetera. <sighs> again we don't have to like re- relitigate the gridiron dinner but it is worth mentioning because one it foreshadows in its own way biden's own covid case and two it's just so 
galling as an event not as a super spreader event just the event itself is so disgusting let me read (laughs) something from the washington post talking about what happened there and just for context they have like it's you know they have like a little show or whatever including comedy skits so washington post says quote some of the comic skits at the event featured actors dressed as the coronavirus like large (sighs) green bouncing balls with red frills at one point, a performer dressed as Fauci sang from the stage to the real Fauci in the audience. Doctor, doctor, give me some clues. We've got a bad case of COVID blues. <sighs> and do they hire the producer from the 1989 Academy Awards? Right, I'm just exactly. wondering if that is Probably. what they did. But then again, it's Washington. So, you know. Uh, hilariously, Lena Wen publishes a Washington Post piece, also an opinion piece saying, uh, the gridiron club outbreak shows what living with COVID-19 looks like. Uh, my <laughs> That's favorite a CBS line, banger that, yeah. <laughs> that op-ed. We'll get, <laughs> um, the e- e- even better. This could have been the headline itself. Some of these, I'm just like putting the headline in here, but this, I just had to like read this particular line from the piece quote, there are those who would argue it's irresponsible to hold parties that could turn into super spreader events. <laughs> period um obviously with a butt coming after that anyway whatever um as i I promise this sorry i cracked (laughs) as uh as i as i mentioned you know uh now now we're getting to like a bit of more of a brisk uh pace with this but that's those are the sort of the major events of april um 13,000 people die of covid in april according to cdc figures Again, 59% of those are vaccinated. You might also notice that apart from the TSA mask mandate, there was, you know, a lot less policy activity on COVID in April. Um, get used to that. The, <laughs> there are long stretches uh, in the remainder of 2022 where the Biden administration more or less seems to be trying to talk about COVID as little as possible. And in the background of this, a couple of things are happening we're becoming increasingly in the dark about the state of the pandemic itself. As we've been talking about, um, programs are ending, testing facilities are closing. People are being encouraged to use rapid tests at home. The ones that cost like $20, none of those tests, those rapid tests are being reported as positive test results by States because obviously there's Mm -hmm. no reporting mechanism for it. Um, In other words, the Biden administration has by now successfully pivoted to cases don't matter. Only hospitalizations do. And as part of that pivot, the work they've done has also made it difficult to even understand how many cases are happening in most of the country. So as I think Abby alluded to this earlier, but if you recall that the change to the community level system in uh, late February significantly increased the threshold of COVID cases required to trigger a a masking recommendation, recommendation, not mandate, when you add to that decreased testing infrastructure and substantially decreased or increasingly infrequent reporting by states of these numbers, uh, that's a very explicit recipe for never recommending masking again, or rarely, really. So by May 2022, uh, perhaps it's no surprise that it's common knowledge by then, by May, uh, that we're basically totally in the dark on COVID numbers. I think I can summarize this entire month best through a few headlines, especially since there's precious little activity on COVID from the Biden administration during May. The first is this Washington Post headline from May 9th, quote, the bar for reimposing mask mandates is getting higher and higher. 
one of the things this article touches on is something we had also talked about here on death panel in April, which is that Philadelphia had recently made an extremely brief attempt at bringing back mask mandates and had ultimately failed to do so undoing them almost immediately. It was so fast. Yeah. Philadelphia was the only large U S city to do this at this time to even try to put them back by mid May, New York city was back too high on the CDC's COVID community level map, but uh, mayor Eric Adams decided to ignore it, not <laughs> issuing a mask mandate or recommendation. Here's the other indicative headline. That's most uh, representative of May. This is also from the Washington Post. Quote, how big is the latest U.S. coronavirus wave? No one really knows. See what I mean about it's that that metaphor of the flood and the rain versus the debris. It's so apt, right? Because what starts is like a conversation about people needing data to be informed because the with four conversation is so much about like, oh, Getting all of these deaths is is so imprecise. Having hospitalizations coupled to testing is imprecise. We need to give people the tools to measure their risk and understand where they're at and where they need to, you know, make decisions about their personal protection and what they're going to do. And of course, like months, just mere months later, it's like, oh well, who's to say what's even going on because yeah. we've stripped <laughs> it all out. You know, pulled the copper the entire- out of the whole building. Changing the entire national discourse into one gigantic Megan McArdle column. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Asymmetric info, indeed. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so uh, to, to sort of cap out May, by May, also, most liberal public health talking heads have basically entirely stopped being okay with saying the word mandate and certainly won't speak out directly in favor of one, not universally, but pretty much as a general rule across the board. Uh, One example of this is one prominent on-again, off-again Biden advisor tweets, uh, for example, quote, social norms are powerful, perhaps more powerful than mask mandates. Uh, David Leonhardt uh, (laughs) writes his column, Why Masks Work But Mandates Haven't, um, (laughs) which I mention... Largely because this newsletter immediately goes around um, and a lot of right wingers and anti mask liberals, um, including of all people like Scott Adams, the Dilbert guy, immediately (laughs) sees on this to tweet some version of look, they said it too." Um, here's one of just one of those tweets from some from one of these individuals, quote, it has finally been said by the New York Times mask mandates don't work. Um, Once again, congratulations to the team. Um, So that's our timeline for May. Uh, What I haven't mentioned yet is in May, we quietly pass 1 million dead by the official count. Just over 12,000 COVID deaths are recorded by May in CDC's count. Uh, 62% of those are vaccinated. 62. It's crazy. Um, 38%. 38%, almost 40% of those, uh, of that 12,000 are even boosted. And this is the thing that's so frustrating because what's really like emerging right now is also this discourse about like whether or not we should trust the live experiences of immunocompromised people who have been saying yeah. like, hey, this is really bad and this doesn't consider the way that I'm in the world as a, as a person, right? And this mm-hmm. is expecting me to be in this kind of bubble elsewhere and somehow protected. This is an enactment of the Great Barrington Declaration's idea of focus protection and you know, it's I think at the time I called it like a personal responsibility hillscape that's like dressed up as biologic destiny. Right. Where it's mm-hmm. it's so much of the conversation is about sort of 
what healthy people are and, and what healthy people can handle and what healthy people don't need to worry about, right? And also, like, who is at risk is framed into this tremendous other in this period starting in May that I think really kind of, you know, is is partially fueled by the transportation mask mandate leaving prior to that in April, but I think is more kind of dealing with the fact that there was no plan to sort of justify the decisions that were being made on the grounds of like, this population had been forgotten about, right? Like this was not the, this was like an oversight in some capacity, but it's more that it's just like, they didn't expect to have to consider, I think, that population at all. And in response to it, our only answer is, well, they don't fucking matter or think of them as not in the world, right? And that's very effective because for so long, this is sort of how people like me have been even allowed to be in society, right? It's been very controlled and, and sort of not visible. So it's not like, you know, you can look at me and know that I'm immunocompromised, right? And and it kind of is this moment, I think, where at the same time, this like growing awareness of there being a population that is more at risk creates a kind of gulf and separation where a lot of people start really thinking of themselves as, as healthy or not sick, right? And that ultimately, I think, has, has consequences that that we've been living through in the latter months of the year so this brings us to june again we've just passed one million dead uh i'm going to start june with something that happens earlier because it's not made clear really when the events depicted in the reporting about this happen you'll all remember this here's politico from june 6th how many covid deaths are acceptable some biden officials tried to guess um i remember this too (laughs) i'll read from this piece just a little bit Um, Quote, Biden officials in recent months privately discussed how many daily COVID-19 deaths it would take to declare the virus tamed. The discussions involved a scenario in which 200 or fewer Americans die per day, uh, which we've never reached just for for to clarify, not even gotten down to Um, a target kicked around before officials ultimately decided not to incorporate it into pandemic planning, according to the people. One of the three people involved in the conversation said it was an effort to gauge what the American public would, quote, tolerate, quoting them, saying 500 a day is a lot. You still have 9-11 numbers in a week. The person said people generally felt like 100 a day or less or maybe 200 would be okay." Um, unquote. Now, note that they never made this, you know, this idea never became official. Did it have to? I guess that's my Yeah. Is it like tolerate? For what? Yeah. Right. Like, oh my God. Right. I mean, I re- this reminds me of um, I remember us talking about I think it might have been this itself, actually, uh, or maybe even earlier in the pandemic before this even broke. Um, I remember us talking about how one of the central lessons that the Biden administration seems to have learned over the course of the pandemic is that as long as they kind of make an attempt to like show a good face, like to make a good show of things and pretend everything is okay. Then the levels of illness, death, disability and debility from COVID that the U S public will apparently just absorb without rioting is actually shockingly high. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, um, one last piece of thing to just to contextualize this. I mentioned that we've never gotten down to 200 deaths a day. Just to note that, again, we've said this before recently, but like even at the level that we're at now or that we were at like maybe a week or two ago because deaths have gone up, daily deaths have gone up. But even at the level that we were at, like the lowest level we've ever been at, uh, we'd still have over 110,000 
deaths a year if we if we kept like the lowest daily death average that we've ever held for a considerable amount of time so that's you know really important to consider when you're considering that maybe it's not fucking over (laughs) anyway um uh, another thing in June, June 2nd, Ashish Jha appears on the aforementioned live stream with Bob Walker, um, mentions that the Biden administration is looking at kicking vaccines and therapeutics to the private market by 2023. June 9th, David Leonhardt releases COVID and race, um, which is another <laughs> big one. His attempt to show quite inaccurately uh, that disparities in COVID deaths have flipped, um, trying to prove the idea that now white people are dying the most um he's wrong a lot of people jump to debunk his claims uh including us we do an episode about it and people call for like the newsletter to be retracted of course it's not mm-hmm. um it's still up there and in fact like leonhardt i think just published a follow-up newsletter like a month or two ago saying basically exactly the same he's thing. a fucking Whatever. liar that's right David leonhardt <laughs> is a liar mm-hmm. um june 20th the TRIPS waiver is officially defeated at the World Trade Organization. Um, I mean, Ooh. yeah, a huge, uh, yeah, I mean, deep whatever. Cut. <laughs> Depending on who you ask, obviously, it's like, you know, the headlines are all like, a TRIPS waiver passes, like, wow, they, they actually did it. But if you look at it, you know, for real, it's like the compromised version of a TRIPS waiver passed. I guess it it's funny because this almost stands alone on the timeline. You could reasonably not even know what the fuck we're talking about. This is the waiver at the World Trade Organization asking for vaccines and therapeutics for COVID-19 to basically have like the patents not honored for the period of the pandemic, at least, um, so that they can be produced all over the world, et cetera, and not just be like the total subject to like total monopoly power under like Pfizer and Moderna and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, nope, that didn't happen. Uh, so that's been yeah dead since June 20th. Uh, in June, um, there were 10,000 deaths uh, by the end of the month. 61% of that number were vaccinated. July 2022 uh, is where we are now. I'm going to go a little quicker because uh, I want us to get to the fall. Um, July, Los Angeles does something similar to what Philadelphia had done before. Uh, tries to reinstate its mask mandate. Does not follow through on that. For our part on the show, we read and make fun of pundit Josh Barrow, who absolutely <laughs> loses his shit over the loses idea it. that Los Angeles could have a mask mandate put back. Um, he compares reinstating a mask mandate to, quote unquote, democratic backsliding, which is cool. Of course, in July, just as we are now, uh, we're more or less in the dark on case counts and transmission. Uh, here's New York Times from July 18th. Quote, COVID rises across U.S. amid muted warnings and murky data. July is also a month where, if I'm being totally honest, I just have to fucking laugh when it comes to what the discourse was and, you know, where pundits were at. Um, I am expecting all four of us have maybe memory hold this by now, but the big conversation in July was literally a bunch of media people seeming to find out for the very first time that in that reinfections are common. Um, this is the thing that I felt like happened, you know, five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, almost universally it's pegged as a novel issue due to the latest COVID variant, uh, the Omicron subvariant BA five. So like, here's the Washington post quote, as the BA five variant spreads, the risk of coronavirus reinfection grows. July 11th in the Atlantic, Ad Yong writes, is BA5 the reinfection wave? <laughs> July 17th in Vox, BA5 doesn't care that you just had COVID-19. 
and you know i'm streamlining my description of all of this uh but and you can go back to see how we were talking about reinfections in july but the thing is uh you know to us and everyone i think has been listening to us for a long time the fact that reinfections are common is something we'd literally been talking about for over a year mm-hmm. at that point uh, as we've kind of you know talked about in telegraph <laughs> so of course, into this environment, Biden himself gets COVID. Uh, no mm-hmm. discussion of July and the year in review could be complete without that. This interrupts the Biden administration's usual MO of try not to talk about it, chill out about COVID, do not mention that people are still dying, don't change any policies really, because you've already undone so much that there's not much left to dismantle anyway. And uh, in terms of how this is talked about in the press, um, here's something that slipped past an editor from the Washington Post, Dan Diamond, uh, quote, I think Biden's own COVID response is what made his infection inevitable, really, said Artie Vierkant, co-host of the Death <laughs> Panel, a left-leaning podcast that has blamed the administration for not pursuing a universal mask mandate and paid sick leave, among other mitigations, quote, he is just one of tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are going to test positive for COVID today, unquote. And I stand by that, except for the left-leaning part. Um, <laughs> uh, he did ma- that really um, unsettling video, like, oh my on God, the yes. deck. Oh my God. With the eyes, yes, his I forgot eyes about that. were so open. <laughs> his proof of life He's like, video. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great, guys. Well, Gonna and- get back to work any day now. That and then in and the, the second like, video, he was in was with sunglasses, probably because his eyes yeah. were so creepy. In the <laughs> first so creepy. <laughs> they made a real show of um, weekend at Bernie'sing him and making sure he was like, "I'm working through it." Or weekend at Biden's. I'm working from home yeah. for a few days because <laughs> you know um, it's important in America working through illness. The uh, the main story around Biden's COVID case, however, was not Biden's COVID case itself. Instead, the main thing that happens is the Biden administration does its damnedest to spin the case as a success story. Ashish Jha, after a short period being slightly more out of view than usual, reemerges with a barrage of media hits um, to spin this exact narrative. And this is when we see, I think, perhaps for the first time, the, I think, impromptu development of a few new lines. Uh, one is uh, this line, which I think was first said when uh, in a press conference by Jaw, uh, like shortly following the announcement that Biden was sick. Um, he says, quote, we are now at a point where we can prevent nearly every COVID death in America. That is a remarkable fact, unquote. Um <laughs> I think the, uh, you know, as we mentioned at the time on the show, that nearly is doing a lot of work there. And prevent, I guess, is doing can a lot of work there. as well, can, for that matter. Yeah, every word we is can. really, yeah. <laughs> we won't. Um, uh, they've used this line countless times since that moment. I cannot stress this enough. This is also where, perhaps in a rush to find new language, the pandemic of the unvaccinated line is rehabilitated into something somehow more sinister um, here's Ashish Jaw <laughs> on NPR shortly after Biden tests positive. They ask him, quote, you know, rightly or wrongly, at this point in the pandemic, testing positive for COVID is starting to feel kind of ordinary for some Americans, and it's <laughs> happening multiple times. They're catching it multiple times. Is that to be expected, or is that alarming from a public health perspective? Deaths are up to nearly 500 a day. Ashish Jaw responds, yeah, so I think... That's the key point, is that it's not the cold. People are still getting quite sick from it. But if you look at who's getting sick, who's really ending up in the hospital, who's ending up in the ICU, who's dying, 
Unfortunately, it's people who are either not vaccinated or not up to date on their vaccines. People who are not fully, you know, boosted or double boosted if they're older. People who have not gotten treatments, unquote, which is, I think, in my opinion, the first instance of them saying what essentially is, they don't say this explicitly, but a pandemic of the unboosted, a pandemic of the didn't get Paxlovid on time. I mean, by this point, it's already the case that like, okay, yeah, some people are going to get really sick, but uh, they won't go to the hospital. But okay, think about the percentage of Americans who do not have paid sick leave and are going to be out of paid work for at least, I mean, if my recent case of COVID is any indication, it's like flat on your back for a week at least, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And like minimum. And so like tools. that's already like those those lo- economic losses are already completely off the balance sheet. Yeah. And now uh, check this out too. Um, sometimes when I go through these timelines, I just have to like marvel at how the commentary at digests stuff or how it like immediately like i don't believe in you know the like the simplicity of the dialectic or whatever but this is check this out this is funny um (laughs) so we've spent recall that we've spent july in an absolutely miserable pundit hype cycle where they were discovering reinfections then biden got covid and the administration immediately moved to say look it's cool normal part of life not his own fault at all for the murderous covid policy we have the tools and so forth um, July 22nd in the Atlantic, quote, America is running out of COVID virgins. July 25th, the Wall Street Journal. Think you've never had COVID-19? Think again. <laughs> um, so this month really ends with this interminable discourse cycle of like, you've definitely had COVID before. If you mm-hmm. haven't, you actually did. You just didn't know it. If you actually haven't, well, you will soon. It's okay. You yeah. know what I mean? It's a very uh, condescending, paternalistic kind of rip the bandaid off framing. You know, I, I think one of the things that emerged at this point was definitely the vibe of like one, obviously COVID versions being used as a pejorative, but also this kind of idea of like people who were trying to protect themselves from from an initial infection were framed as this kind of like unicorn, right? Like a really increasingly rare thing that was normalized out of existence, essentially, through the kind of framings that, that you're bringing up here, which also at the same time, like became a kind of identity for some people within the COVID community to sort of like embrace that. And it was like, I think a, a kind of strange moment where, we kind of like saw the discourse just completely disconnect a lot and become a lot more messy starting in the summer. And that's continued through the fall. Yeah, yeah I think that's true. And I also think I just want to underscore like the powerful normalization in this like message that's getting, I don't know, like as it's being digested in like the gizzard of the like commentariat or whatever. Um <laughs> You know, virginity is like totally not a real thing, but it's very interesting, you know, like and I think like COVID virgins is kind of like a creepy way to frame that. But on the other hand, it accomplishes something really powerful because, you know, losing your virginity is like we think of it, we conceive of it culturally as like a rite of passage, like sort of a passage from like youth into like maturity, adulthood and stuff. And um For as creepy as it is, I don't think you could have come up with kind of like a more perfect 
uh, way to kind of normalize this idea that like, oh no, like getting COVID, it's a rite of passage. It's like a normal, like you have to get COVID, Yeah. right? Like it's gonna happen. Yeah. Hundreds of millions of people can't be wrong, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, So that's July. Um, In July, 11,000 people died of COVID. Just like June, 61% of those were vaccinated. So now we're on August. In early August, on the 3rd, the Biden administration releases their plan for long COVID. It sucks. Um, (laughs) We reviewed it. (laughs) Yeah, we reviewed it in an episode called The Long Welfare State. That is definitely worth a listen. Um, But in summary, most of the long COVID plan is literally 120 pages listing programs that currently exist under our already woefully inadequate welfare state yeah is bad it's like how do you do fellow long haulers have you ever heard of medicaid (laughs) um right i mean that's basically basically yeah yeah. um Uh, you know what do you need when you're dealing with brain fog and medical inaccessibility but a very long pdf of lists (laughs) right yes of lists not links even lists um Long COVID does thankfully get a lot of attention in August, um, not really because of the Biden administration's plan itself, though, but because at the end of August, the conservative think tank, the Brookings Institution, releases a report showing that as many as four million people are out of work because of long COVID, uh, which we also talked about recently in one of our episodes called Long COVID Media Framings. We also finally get uh, by far the most direct confirmation that the Biden administration is working to kick COVID care to the private market. Um, In an interview with the Chamber of Commerce, Ashish Jha says the following, quote, my hope is that in 2023, you're going to see the commercialization of almost all of these products. Some of that is actually going to begin in the fall, in the days and weeks ahead, you're going to see the commercialization of some of these things, unquote, adding that it is uh, that while the U.S. has been happy to play this role, they want to, quote unquote, get out of the business of covid treatments. <laughs> um, an HHS blog post uh, shortly after on August 30th also follows this up quite literally um, Uh, echoing this language, um, saying, for instance, quote, while the federal government has been pleased to play this role, we have always known that we would not be in this business forever. Love that, you know, the framing of business is in there. It's really key, right? This is all just like part of like, this is all going on Biden's LinkedIn. You know what I mean? He's just ready to learn some new skills, like maybe make a career transition. Um, There is one minor uh, regulatory change that the CDC makes August 11th. Um, They change their guidelines on isolation and quarantine specifically for schools. Um, While I don't want to totally downplay these guideline changes, they are a downgrade in COVID protections. Um, The way that these are covered in August is extremely weird at best. Um, (laughs) Most of the actual undoing of COVID protections has by this point already, already happened. happened. As we've talked about, there's like a bloodbath as I, it's hard to say that word again, but like whatever, there's a fucking bloodbath of COVID protections being dropped early in the year. And despite this, for example, I, I read a couple of other examples of this when we talked about this on the show. I'll just, I'll just pick one um, here, but there are literally several variations of major press covering this as uh, for instance, the following New York times quote, The changes shift much of the responsibility for risk reduction from institutions to individuals, unquote, Mm. which, again, you know, 
whatever. I, I think I said on the show when when this happened, like, where the fuck have you been? This is whatever. Anyway, been happening. Been happening. So hey, better late than never, right? Um, to to just sort of continue the uh, you know COVID virgins discourse. August 29th, Wall Street Journal headline: Why some Americans are still isolating from COVID nineteen. Doing a lot of the same kind of kind of work there that we've been talking about. Um, deaths are up in August. Seventeen thousand five hundred people die in August. Fifty eight percent of whom were vaccinated. This is also unfortunately the last month that we have up to date figures on breakthrough deaths because the data set lags. Um, so we'll we'll talk about these on the show in the coming months. I'm sure when that data is updated. September. <sighs> We're catching up with where we actually are at now. Um, The Biden administration opened September with a rush to get as many people to take the updated bivalent booster as possible, all while doing as little as possible to actually achieve that goal. (laughs) Um, They also go with a big claim that the COVID vaccine will be a once a year shot like the flu shot, despite no evidence that once a year is enough protection in the absence of masking or literally anything else. Paid leave, for example. Uh, based on figures on bivalent booster uptake, um, I think the four of us on this recording right now are maybe the only four people who have gotten it. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but uh, while we're already to September, just a few months ago, like let's look at the current vaccine uptake. uptake. Um, as of today, when we're recording this in December, just 13.5% of people have gotten the updated booster in the U.S., Definitely worse. Only three percent of kids aged six months to two years have completed the primary series of vaccination. Three percent, um, even though it's been approved for months. Um, for kids between two and four, only about five percent of them have completed primary series vaccination. So yeah, we're doing great. Just super <laughs> yeah. great. Well, that's just such a huge failure, and it's so interesting. I mean, it's always been the case that vaccination has been super lagging, even as the Biden administration is putting all of their eggs in the basket of these vaccines. But I just think it's all the rhetorical eggs, at least. Yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I just think it's fucking shameful. It's such a failure that they have not done really anything to juice this really, really anemic vaccine uptake and and vaccine outreach. And um, absolutely. I'm yeah, I don't know. I feel like that kind of gets lost in the shuffle a lot because there's so much like goofy clown shit like constantly swirling around this administration. But like this president said, you know, basically, if you're not vaccinated, you're going to die of covid. So you better hurry your ass up and get vaccinated because, you know, we're not helping you this year. This whole year, like literally half of the people, sometimes more than half, depending on the month were not like of the people who were dying of covid were fucking vaccinated yeah and on top of that our fucking vaccination rates are so miserably like miserably low to be like i feel confident calling them piss poor you know what i mean (laughs) yeah piss poor vaccination scientific term right and it's not because of like vaccine hesitancy it's because like they haven't fucking done it like they haven't people haven't exactly gone fucking fucking door to door with vaccines but whatever anyway i digress September 7th, New York's MTA announces its wonderful new series of masking PSAs. You do you. Let's respect each other's choices. Um, Just had to get that in there and make sure it was there. Um, (laughs) September 19th, um, although it actually happened like the week before, but who's counting? September 19th, a video is released, at least, of Biden speaking to 60 Minutes off the cuff at the Detroit Auto Show, declaring (laughs) the pandemic over. 
Um, so just for context, according to data from Johns Hopkins, the day that he says this, 937 COVID deaths are reported. Mm-hmm. Um, the quote itself, which again, he says, like, uh, he's, he's asked, is the pandemic over? But he didn't, he didn't have to take the bait. Um, the quote itself is, quote, the pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. But the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everyone seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it, unquote. Oh, that's really good. (laughs) This is so I mean, so this is great because, again, like he's okay. This is the moment where it's like very clear. But in reality, it was the ground was prepared for him to make this utterance you know, by any number of speeches that Ashish gave, any number of things like policy moves that they like, this is all, there's a lot moving up to this. Now, the thing about it that makes it really distinctive is that um, it's around this time that the Senate is getting ready to vote on a continuing resolution Mm -hmm. um, uh, to keep the government uh, open. And it's, I think several days maybe after this um, speech is made, Biden's Office of Management and Budget again releases another letter to Congress saying, by the way, here are our uh, demands for COVID and Ukraine. But like rather than using this as a moment to say, hey, we've got the potential winter surge coming up, uh, this might be something to go to bat for getting at least a a piece, not even like half a loaf, like, I don't know, a crumb (laughs) of the supplemental uh, to be tacked on to the, the CR. Um, but he doesn't go for any of it. He just lets the CR be voted on without any of this money. I think the Ukraine money went in there, but uh, that was his, in a sense to think about it this way right now, there's going to be another, like in a few days, there's going to be another uh, debate over the continuing resolution, but he missed his one shot. He had one shot. It was in September and he blew it like there, there's not going to be that money isn't going to go into the CR coming up in December. And once Republicans take control of Congress, forget about it. Uh, so he had one shot, missed it, blew it. Well, and the moment that he said this, like it becomes the talking point, especially among Republicans, basically saying, like, look, he said it. Like, why would we fund it? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Yeah. He, he said it like there. There it is. Which always which always raises the has raised the question for me is like how sincere. Uh, like what, what what kind of intentionality do I attribute to the high level of priority that the White House says it's attaching to that additional twenty two point four billion? What does that mean? You've got one chance with the CR and, you know, you send a sheesh up to the hill, which, by the way, from the beginning, I was like, this guy like the one thing we can be sure he'll be really bad at is doing anything for the white house on the hill. Um, and, yeah. and evidently like I was, that did, that wasn't too hard to be right about that. Yeah. But again, it's yeah, exactly. Like, you know, the quatrains, uh, like the twice blessed man. Uh, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah. So, so this is, I mean, but this is, I I'm laughing, but this is actually, it's infuriating. It's, yeah. it's, it's infuriating and it's, and it's horrific because it's like, even if we were, even if the Democrats were able to get, you know, ring money from a, a budget negotiation in December, it would be too late. 
You know, like like there there's a burn rate attached to these negotiations. If you don't get the money in September, it's not going to be there when people need to do something when there is a surge. But I, you know, but so this is the thing. It's like whether or not it's intentional by this point, the set of policy instruments and rhetorical devices that were set up in the first three months of 2022 did sort of take the, pre- I think it did sort of take the pressure off. Like things are really bad, but other people have to deal. It's other people's problem. Other people have to deal with them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the idea. So, which is, which makes all the more, I think, uh, enraging. That's like, we can, we can, pre- every single COVID death is preventable. That line <laughs> that comes out in the summer, it's like, sure. If you want to, I mean, if the government prove wants it. to like, yeah, yeah pr- pr- like prove it. Like, what are you in a sense, uh, willing to do. Yeah. And it absolutely doesn't help that basically following this, we get a whole litany of um, reporting that comes out. That's basically saying, I mean, first of all, they didn't and still haven't like really made a big push to counteract the effects of this claim. In fact, basically a lot of the reporting immediately following this is like, well, you know, half of the people in the administration think that he's, you know, jumping the shark here. And the other half are like, yeah, it's good that he said that it's time. Like it's, it's time for him to say that it's et cetera. Um, Walensky is asked about it, uh, by stat news, um, in an article that comes out on September 23rd, um, responding to the idea that the pandemic is over. She says, quote, I think that there are a lot of different ways to think about a pandemic being over. I will not let go of the 350 deaths we are having every single day, she said, but noted that, quote, it's still way less than 3,000 deaths that were occurring each day in January 2021. And so I think we are in a very different place. And in (laughs) January 2022, but we're not ready for that conversation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, September deaths, 12,700 people die in September of covid uh, again, August was the last month that we have vaccination breakdown. Um, October. Now we're getting to recent history, so I'll say a couple of things um, about October. In October, the Biden administration unveils its bold new plan for fall and winter. Its plan: let CVS run the COVID response. I mean, I'm I'm kidding, but uh, this is another thing where we have an entire episode dedicated to this. Um, October 25th, Biden appears flanked by executives from CVS. Rite Aid, Walgreens, Boots Alliance, Albertsons, and more to deliver the good news, um, which is if you get the new vaccines, you can get some coupons for the places uh, that the executives are standing. What a win. That are represented by the executives standing behind them. I love America, um, right? But Also, uh, <laughs> to draw from the text of the, the bold new COVID uh, fall winter COVID plan itself, uh, quote, Medicare will send a second email reminder to the 16 million people who have signed up to receive Medicare emails with information about the updated COVID-19 vaccines and how to get them. Yeah, what more could, um, what more could you people want? A second whole email. Um, the latest White House plan also includes uh, a plan for, uh, quote, patients with a prescription for Paxlovid being filled at Walgreens who live in a socially vulnerable community based on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's social vulnerability index will be able to have their Paxlovid prescription delivered to their home through Uber health and DoorDash at no cost via Walgreens.com and the Walgreens app. If they started a small business. By the way, (laughs) I tried tried seeing if that was available last Monday. 
And we do live in a zip code, Artie and I, where we're supposed to be eligible for this. And when I talked to Walgreens, they they said, they, were like, huh. they go, yeah, we don't have enough staff for that. Even though you're COVID positive, we need you to come in the store and get your own prescription. We won't even walk it to the front door of the store and hand it to you outside. Yeah. Like they had so. me waiting in the store when they knew I was there to pick up my own Haxlovid prescription. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, if there's, uh, yeah, these are people's working conditions. Like this is fu- fucking like yeah, thanks Biden. Absolutely. Great job. Great job. Round of applause. Great job to the team. Please clap. <laughs> um, so, uh, maybe even more, uh, dark than the volley of ads, basically that the uh, fall winter COVID plan was, is, um, the rhetoric that Biden used in his speech announcing it again, flanked by these pharmacy chain executives, he uh, he said uh, in this announcement, "quote um, again, looking ahead to the to the fall and winter when we expect you know cases and deaths to rise." "quote As a country, uh, we have a choice to make. We can repeat what happened in past winters: more infections, more hospitalizations, more loved ones getting sick, even dying from the virus, or we can have a much better winter if we use all of the tools we have available to us right now." Let me be as plain as I can. We still have hundreds of people dying every day from COVID in this country. Hundreds. That number is likely to rise in this winter. I made sure of it. But this year is different from the past. (laughs) This year, nearly every death is preventable. Let me say that again. Nearly every death is preventable. And I will refuse to prevent it. Here's, uh, continuing, here's the bottom line. Virtually every COVID death in America is preventable. Virtually every one. Almost everyone who will die from COVID this year will not be up to date on their shots or will not have taken Paxlovid when they got sick. So there you go. Again, the same two lines that Jaw had used when Biden had his COVID diagnosis, this like we can prevent all the deaths and a pandemic of the unboosted, a pandemic of the didn't get uh, Paxlovid on time. And of course, this has shades of this almost brings us full circle from the uh, for the unvaccinated we're you know, winter of uh, severe illness yeah, so and death. Yes, we are looking at a winter of severe illness and death uh, for themselves, their families, and the hospitals they're soon, they will soon overwhelm. Important thing to note, as the Biden administration uh, does this song and dance with pharmacy chain executives uh, and prepares to hand off COVID treatments to the private market by 2023, uh, on October 21st, Pfizer announces in a, I believe in a uh, investor call that they will be seeking a 110 to $130 price tag per dose for its vaccine when it goes to the private market, presumably in 2023. As we know uh, from 2021, as you know, we talked about on Death Panel and BNI have wrote about this in a 2021 investor call. We know that uh, Pfizer had been basically just waiting for this to happen. Uh, they said that they were uh, they called the current uh, scheme where the federal government was buying the uh, vaccines for like, you know, between 15 and 20 dollars a dose, a quote unquote pandemic pricing market saying, quote, obviously, we're going to get more on price. Um which also, like, it's worth noting, nevertheless, the pandemic pricing environment aside, Pfizer has made record profits and has immediately reinvested that into buying up pharmaceutical IP for rare disease drugs. In the Naturally, yeah. Anyway, uh, almost over October. What else characterizes October? Immunity debt. Um, also, the whole triple-demic business uh, kicks up as discourse. Um, as Abby said on an episode recently that... Um, 
the way that they're talking about the uh, confluence of COVID flu and RSV into like a generically labeled like respiratory pathogen burden is interesting because, uh, you know, using the like an understanding of the the idea of a syndemic or syndemics is well understood in public health, but never really before now used uh, to downplay each individual component pandemic. Um, But here we are. Uh, October 31st, Emily Oster besmirches my favorite holiday with the Atlantic article, Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. And uh, we didn't talk about this on the show, but before the end of October, a team of researchers writing one working paper in the National Bureau of Economic Research, or NBER, uh, tries to come up with a brilliant idea for reframing the ongoing workplace disruption of death and disability caused by our COVID response um, by saying it's not, you know, long COVID and 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 all these deaths that are problem for uh, workforce participation being lower. It's uh, no long social distancing. Oh, <laughs> cool. Um, and it's our book just, comes out. It's just addicted to lockdown in like a trench coat, you know, exactly. Totally. <laughs> in a Mr. Potato Head disguise. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 12,000 people die in October of COVID. Of course, uh, this is according to the, you know, th- these are CDC figures. I have no idea how well these are even being tracked at this point. I mean, totally we know that honest. all of the deaths are, you know, likely an undercount. This is like something the CDC has said. Well, a lot of because st- it also is taking in state reporting and right. state reporting it's has gotten much worse. So, yeah, that's the official count. So this this brings us to November. November 18th, uh, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla says at the STAT Summit in Boston that Pfizer's vaccine will continue to be, quote, free for all Americans. Uh, he's talking, of course, only about people with a health insurance plan. Um, <laughs> November 23rd. Uh, I actually love that. That's so good. Right? <laughs> he took T.H. Marshall's uh, uh, understanding of social citizenship to a little too yeah. literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. God. He didn't have to go that hard. Also in November, we have for the first time in a while, sort of a renewed attention on breakthrough cases and deaths. I mean, obviously we've been talking about this whole uh, episode, but I mean, on like a a larger level, Um, this happens though, in part because of a Washington post series of articles on the same data set, uh, CDC data set that uh, both we and like the Kaiser family foundation have drawn from to uh, talk about breakthrough deaths. Um, Here's how the post frames it though. November 23rd, COVID is no longer mainly a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Here's why. No longer mainly. (laughs) Surprise. Uh, Again, never was. Uh, We talked about this when it was unveiled, but whatever. Um, And then get ready for here are are two headlines adorning the same piece. This is like two A-B tested versions of the the headline or they updated it, whatever. So um, COVID deaths skew older, reviving questions about acceptable loss. Oh, boy. Um, the most recent update, COVID becomes plague of elderly, reviving debate over acceptable loss. So from a pandemic of the unvaccinated to a plague of the elderly. I, I, yeah, Yeah, that's about right. Um, November deaths again from the CDC, 12,000 December. So this brings us to the last few weeks. Um, I'm just, I just have a couple of things to say about the last few weeks. Uh, and then we can just have, you know however much discussion we want on like just looking back at this whole, at this whole thing and takeaways. But you know, in the last few weeks, cases are spiking again. I mean, fuck, even as we've talked about, we just had it. 
Um, the only place that I can think of that I could have gotten it is literally at the grocery store because one way masking is not sufficient. 3000 people died in the last week alone. As we said at the top, there's absolutely no reason to think that that couldn't go up. This has led to some places once again, recommending masking, but going far short of mandating it. The CDC and the Biden administration has even broken its long streak of going out of its way to not say the word masking or masks recently. Although much of the coverage of this, unfortunately, I think largely is reacting to uh, the fact that in a good amount of places, even under the community level system, they have hit high again. And so the CDC is now once again, kind of like recommending, I think now it's in 13% of counties that people uh, mask again, but again, a recommendation to a state government or local government is it's like far from the same thing as a, as a mandate. Not even doing the bare minimum. Basically. A um, recommendation to a state government based on a really opaque and convoluted like group of metrics that's really hard to yeah, understand. Exactly. It's, you know, um, still mostly green. That map is still like colored go. Yeah. And of course, on December 15th, Ashish Jha speaking on a live stream with the Philadelphia Inquirer and uh, not to mention not just the Inquirer, the, the press, but the Philadelphia um, Public Health Commissioner said the following. I'll just play the actual clip. I mean, the notion that you could cut respiratory infections, there's no study in the world that shows that masks work that well. So you're never going to get the kind of benefit from mandatory year round masking as you would from making substantial improvements in indoor air quality. But it's a lot easier to implement as well. So that, I think, really gives us a very clear picture of what they're thinking about right now when it comes to masking. This is a layered intervention that they are absolutely done with, as we talk about in our uh, companion episode, How Liberals Killed Masking. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. is like the, there's often people say, pay attention to the policy, not the atmospherics. But atmospherics mm. have been the entirety of it. Yeah. I mean, it's all atmospherics. <laughs> it's, so the policy exists, evidently. Merely is a way of denying that you've been performing the atmospherics. Yeah. I mean, that's just like it's, 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 uh, we're in like, I think, uh, perhaps not new terrain, but terrain that has, uh, you know, been terra incognita <laughs> until recently. And now it's very visible how it works. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I'm, I have basically one last thing to, um, say about this on, on timeline. And it's actually very fitting for what, where this, you know, just kind of immediately went because speaking of this opaque system, I want to pause on just uh, one one thing regarding this community level system and how it could, well, certainly now it is, you know, quite opaque, um, how it could frankly get worse, which is this. I want to just uh, read from, uh, this is the last kind of big quote. Uh, here's a report from CNBC um, from December 5th. We also encourage you to wear a high-quality, well-fitting mask to prevent the spread of respiratory illnesses, said Walensky. Notice that she's not saying COVID, she's saying respiratory illnesses. Um, adding that people living in areas with high levels of COVID transmission should especially consider masking. The CDC director said the agency is considering expanding its system of COVID community levels to take into account other respiratory viruses such as the flu, unquote. And so... You know, again, just noting this, this is actually almost similar to one of the, to what happened last year, which is like one of the last things I said in COVID year two was also sort of a like, just watch this space kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. And I just want to note this, like in terms of the community level system, not only not being undone, 
mm-hmm. but like potentially changing to incorporate this acknowledging the existence of potentially a syndemic while downplaying the component pandemics mm-hmm. of that um just important to watch so anyway that's our timeline that's covid year three it's staggering what a long strange trip it's been <laughs> yeah and i think looking back you know looking back at this moment in late february right you really sort of see the like tracks out laid out in front of the roller coaster that we were about to go <laughs> you know it wow, like yeah, you could really kind of see the trajectory and Unfortunately, I think what we've also seen this year is like, well, last year, I think my main takeaway was like, wow, we have so many missed opportunities to essentially like make interventions while reducing spread. And yet we chose to make interventions and roll back protections at the same time, which just fueled spread and undermined the interventions we were trying to make. And that was sort of, you know, putting the blame on on the administration for taking a lead in in normalizing that. And what we've seen this year is this kind of forcing of the idea of there's no going back, you know? Yeah. And yet we're like back to a, a new normal and the new normal is kind of not working, constantly showing its con- contradictions, constantly showing its vulnerabilities. And every time we see that system level issue essentially that is exacerbating whatever aspect of the pandemic sort of transformed into something that becomes individuated right whether it's people not making the right consumer choices and not picking the right brand of mask or not wearing the right type of mask or whether it's about nitpicking over breakthrough deaths and with versus for versus because This is like all been in service of really kind of creating this landscape where not only is there a narrative vacuum, but it's very difficult to get a picture of what's even going on now in just a year where we were so focused on understanding the pandemic in the first two years through numbers and data and metrics. And everybody was at the top the talking point was like, we need better data infrastructure, right? Like even people like Emily Oster were, were positioning their project as being- Creating resp- it, yeah. Right, being responsive to this need for data. And it's very interesting to see how that framework has transformed over the last year and how data as a idea more than as like, an actual thing that we use as a material has really kind of shifted from this way that we understand the pandemic as continuing to something that really just is downplayed to the point that in and of itself, the lack of it begins to become like proof for some people that the pandemic doesn't exist. And the lack of proof being the proof is really frustrating, right? This is this is the same case we saw with breakthrough deaths. This is the same case we saw with saying the vaccine was going to prevent transmission, the kind of overselling of the silver bullet strategy. There's been a lot of overpromising and underdelivering, and the overpromising has happened based on conjecture from lack of data, and the underdelivering has come justified as data driven, and now with no data, like <laughs> you know, we still see these same 
moves employed. And so it really kind of shows you almost like how that idea of like empiricism and following the science and following the data, how bullshit and like superficial that actually has been this whole time, right? That like to a point, we're going to follow the data and we're going to be informed by quote unquote science. And it's very important to ask like, whose science are we following and which data and how are we even interpreting it? But that's, you know, it's it's been treated this this you know, just unequivocally good, positive thing that is neutral, right? This this idea of neutrality and objectivity is just a fucking farce. Well, and yeah, this I mean, I've just shown that for sure. I mean, I think I think to whatever extent people might have assumed that um, whatever public health in the United States really bad um, as a system, not much of a system, you know, for years before the pandemic. But I think to the extent that people thought it was there, they thought look, that maybe the one remaining virtue of it was that it was somehow disconnected from, in in one way or another, from the kind of the apparatus of the capitalist state. That maybe it was, with, it was within the capitalist state, but was somehow hived off, that there had been some walls erected uh, over the years and, and perhaps uh, no wall less important than the wall of um, uh, professionalism, but the wall was like a, you know, curtain uh, or maybe just like a mirage. Um, it always was. And uh, it was just awaiting the pandemic to illustrate the extent to which it was a mirage. Um, and so like all of these expectations that I might have had going in about at least how I would expect to see, you know, maybe a clash between professionals and politicals so to speak, at a very high level, ended up being more consens- consensual uh, than I thought because, of you know, that's just sort of how uh, kind of deep the interpenetration is. And so I guess I sort of, I, I think the important thing at this point is, is to think about like, okay, whatever myth of, uh, a, you know, the, the state's myth that it protects people from death that it prolongs life uh and that's like one of its claims to authority or legitimacy is now sort of shattered and the question is like what do, what do you do with that because on the other hand it seems like civil society quote unquote the left whatever that means it, it is like still for one reason or another it's 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 very difficult to respond even when these stimuli are brutal and yeah. I, I that that's just sort of like where i come away from this is like Forget the idea that like somehow through shame or quote unquote, like the middle class accountability of, say, the 1960s onward, the Ralph Nader, the Ralph Nader idea, sort of accountability, like we're going to put the nutrition facts on there. You'll know (laughs) the the GAO will tell you that somebody's fucked up or, you know, that that that's that's gone. That that Mm -hmm. that idea of like retrospective will know when someone fucked up. Like we still have all the opportunities of. we, we still have all of the, you know, uh, institutions that sort of do that. But like the question you have to ask is like, what do they do? Yeah. Like, like do, do they, do they cease, do, do they cause uh, a certain kind of behavior not to be reproduced? No, they don't. And so, you know, I guess the question is like, what exactly then do you ask for? Do you demand in that space? Well, and I think this is why us connecting this point carrying it over from last year of like 
the structural role of the presidency of like Biden's role as sort of the senior manager of capitalism, uh, or at least, you know, capitalism in the U S or, or whatever is really important to carry over because, um, you know, Biden in his own words from before he was elected pledged to shut down the virus, not shut down the economy and, you know, look where it's gotten in us. Um, I mean, was it worth it? Like this shitty, miserable economy where, you know, so many people are struggling and where the temporary gains that may have been gotten from forcing people back to work have just like, you know, basically immediately slipped away where instead you're just like forcing people back to work sick over and over and over again. You know, I, that just all of this is making me think of there's, there's like some, I think this is maybe what you're getting at Phil too. There's like a lot of people who say some version of like, there must be some level of death or some level of sickness yes. and debility mm-hmm. that there will isn't. make the system stop there working. Isn't. There's never been. will cause them to wake side. up. Yeah. Like, right. And it's right. Exactly. And like, I'm yeah. sorry, the, the, um, there's no uh, moral limit. Right. Me and I were talking about this yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, I think this is where also like, there's this through line in, in other episodes that we've had this year of, um, including like ones where we've been talking to um, Nate Holdren about this specifically talking about how like the idea that social murder is not only like a component to capitalism, but kind of that capitalism relies on it. I mean, that's yeah. basically what our book is about too, what health communism is about too. But I think that understanding that and understanding that fundamental relationship really helps explain why like, no, you can't just say, I mean, even Ashish Jaw said, like, as B was reminding me the other day, like even Ashish Jaw was saying of the funding situation, well, when it gets really bad again, Congress will fund it. As late as that September. That was his strategy. That as was his purported as strategy. September. Right. September, he was saying. And that strategy is bullshit. Yeah. That whole idea, like just waiting for things to get bad enough that like someone else takes action is fucking bullshit. Like this, this is, is why the, we can't just be in the back. This is also the same attitude that we like use all the time towards other populations who are abandoned for different reasons in this context too. If you think about like the way that people uh, just assume that people who are disabled must have like assistance or must be yeah. able to qualify for SSDI or else they aren't really disabled, right? This kind of role that biocertification plays in in sort of proof making but also in sort of creating the imaginary that we do know everything and we can discern everything to the nth degree and that we can know the unknowable and that we know everything is this fantasy that as it's been applied to COVID has been very very effective in terms of delivering what the American political economy demanded which was the response that the Biden administration has marshaled, right? Like, it's not that there is, like, some, you know, corruption of democracy going on in the current iteration of the Democratic Party. These are institutions operating in the functions that they have been designed to 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 carry out, right? This is the priorities that are being, like, handled at, at, at the kind of COVID response level might be priorities that you personally disagree with or that you thought were not the priorities that governed, you know, things like our public health system. And unfortunately, you know, they they are and they have been. And what we're seeing now is is something that may have been invisible to you before, but has existed in in other forms and other iterations, which can help us see the fact that this isn't some sort of 
crisis phenomena of bad behavior under no. extenuating mm-hmm. circumstances. Mm-hmm. This is more that the crisis provides a concentration of, of, of acute sickness that allows us to see some things that were we much more before. difficult to see because it was the debris at the bottom of the fucking flood, yep. right? And so yeah. now that we're drowning, it's easy to see that there's like cars and cows and houses under here, right? But before it just like looks like it's the rain that's doing it. And so this is like, this is the kind of thing that happens to like a lot of people as they step into the identity of like, being someone who is chronically ill or disabled, right? Like you start to realize so many people just assume that like you will have your needs met if you're sick enough. And if you don't, it's because you did something wrong. And for a really long time, it's really jarring and and you're like shocked every time someone behaves this way towards you. And then eventually you start to realize that, no, this is sort of downstream of a much broader structural phenomenon, which is that everything is somebody else's problem in the United States. But even this sort of political theory as like a political theory that um, if things get bad enough, then there will be some sort of moral limit. I mean, even that just in a the, the most basic model of democracy sort of assumes that you have a, a system of political parties with mass mass Support. linkages to like a mass or like linkage organizational linkages that, yeah. that connect them that connect them to to a mass base or a mass population, which it just is not the case. No. Uh, here and um, so, any idea that like you know a, a crisis actually creates a fulcrum, um, there's like there's there is at least one. There are others, but like that is a huge missing link. Um, and so, I mean, that's the 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 funny thing. I mean, I guess the the more um, immediately horrifying thing, I guess, is just that, like you can get away with saying that. Like, because, because uh, at the very least you're like, in this case, like you're a public health professional. Like that's, that's the, like, yeah. Oh yeah. What, what, what ideas in public health? Yeah. Like when things get bad, then we'll, you know, we'll take care of it then. Like where, where does that come from in public health? I can't remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're giving public health a lot of credit for having yeah, like, a coherent conceptual yeah. basis, which it does not. <laughs> Yeah. But it's power. But I mean, that. but that's it's the power. point, isn't it, Abby? Yes. That's the thing. Of course. I think like, okay, I have a jumble of thoughts that I'm going to try to like iron out uh, in a somewhat coherent way. It's just power. Knowledge is power. You know, certainly it's empowering to have knowledge of the state of the pandemic in the country. And that information has now been hidden, right? Like power has been kind of like exercised on us. But it's part of a much longer sort of process as, you know, this episode and the sort of companion episodes from from prior years have established, you know, this exercise of power has been happening, you know, from from all angles and kind of all at once. And I think, you know, thinking about like, because my overwhelming feeling this year has been like, well, what the hell do we do now? Like, where do we go from here? Like, I don't know. I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I don't know what our demands should be, but I feel very strongly that there's no amount of like shock or outrage. Like as, as we were saying, you know, like there's no moral limit here. There's no ultimate moral authority to appeal to that can like turn all these gears backwards and reverse this like horrible process that's been put in place. And 
my, you know, my personally, my, my struggle over a lot of this year has been thinking about how to formulate those demands. And I'm not quite there yet because a large part of me is like still dwelling in like the like grief and anger. I lost a lot of the hope that I had. And this happened to me in like the, like last winter around the Omicron wave, you know, when I was just like, oh, okay. Like I thought, you know, I was hoping that the Biden administration wouldn't be so bad, but Unfortunately, you know, like these things are really structurally overdetermined by the political economy of the United States and things are happening kind of how I thought they would. And it's just like compounding, you know, nightmare and crisis and always getting worse. And, you know, like all these things being taken away in terms of, you know, like data and information resources. It's been hard for me to figure out how to dwell in like the political present this year. And it's been very tempting for me to dwell in just like my grief and anger that like the future that I hoped for Mm -hmm. um, did not come to pass uh, in terms of COVID policy. And not only that I hoped for, you know, that I actually like worked towards. Um, Yeah. And so that's kind of where I am now is in just this really weird kind of it feels like a liminal space of figuring out how to confront the actual conditions of the present in a way that's going to be, or that at least, you know, theoretically, or at least has a chance of being impactful and meaningful. And I really get, you know, I feel like a lot of the discourse has kind of dissolved into just like lamentation this year. You know what I mean? That like, you know, it's lamentations that we didn't do a, a, you know, like a six week shutdown at the very beginning and and deal with this ahead of time, you know, lamentations that all of the, like the, all these things that the CDC has done, you know, like rolling back the masking guidance and rolling back the um, isolation guidance and all that stuff. But now I feel like it's, it's a very weird kind of like, I don't want to say aftermath, you know, like I'm not trying to imply that like the pandemic no. is over because it's not, no. but it feels like trying to like pick up and make sense of, like the aftermath of a disaster that we kind of like watched happen, you know, and like, I, you know, you all know, cause you were too, like all four of us were very closely, you know, involved in covering the pandemic, you know, thinking about it, um, like political mobilization around it from the very beginning. And, you know, I have a newfound kind of like, awe, I guess that like the, the juggernaut of, of, American capitalism, right? That it just kind of (laughs) steamrolled right through this, like, you know, horrible disaster. Um, the, the challenge for me, like, yeah, the challenge for me now is politically figuring out how to get away from the, the space of like lamentation, you know, that the world that we wanted to create out of this like rupture didn't come to pass like that. We, you know, that I personally like didn't succeed as like a, as an epidemiologist in, you know, affecting a better pandemic response and figuring out like what, what the demand needs to be going forward. And I feel like where I've, I'm coming down on this is like now, you know, COVID has occupied so much of my brain space and so much of my time and so much of my emotional energy, the way that I'm now sort of coming to understand it and how to make demands around it is like, okay, well now COVID is just part of the ongoing fight for health justice, which, uh, you know, again, you all and I and a lot of people were involved with long before long before COVID 
long before COVID sort of appeared on the scene. Um, and so I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be difficult and really interesting, but I think there's potential for a lot of really constructive work and for it to be really generative to be thinking about COVID less as kind of this like, you know, state of exception, this like exceptional threat, whatever, which like it, it you know, it po- COVID poses an exceptional threat. Like, don't get me wrong. I think we are unfortunately like this is not the outcome that I wanted um, to come to pass. But now we have to figure out how to put COVID, you know, and COVID politics into conversation, you know, with like health, health justice more generally. And I mean, I think this podcast does a really good job of doing that just in general, but in terms of a a more general demand, I guess that's where I come down. I mean, I feel like I, I understand why we've been in this mode of thinking of things as foreclosed upon and thinking of things retrospectively and sort of in terms of looking back, because a lot of what we've been doing this year is we've been engaged in knowledge production that is responsive. Like we've had to do that because that's been the circumstance of how things have been thrown at us. And, you know, obviously it's, it might seem like, okay, you know, we've lost some sort of horizon and like now we need to move on to the next moment. But I, I think <laughs> I've, I've really stopped thinking about things so episodically in my life, like over the like 15 years of being sick. And so I think that informs some of my thinking here, which is that, you know, nothing's ever really over and it's all, <laughs> it's all just kind of flowing forward. Temporally speaking, there's no discrete beginning or end of like a lot of these events, um, we can try and make brackets that impose some kind of like linear time onto things like this, but that's not, it's not actually how it works, you know? And, and what we've seen, unfortunately, is that there was a kind of gamble made this year to prioritize the economy and that there weren't going to be a bunch of kids that were going to get sick and die. And a bunch of kids did get sick and die. And some people thought that that, that that would matter and it didn't. And it's a horrific thing to try and continue to move forward after a loss like that, right? Like yeah. these, all of the COVID losses are not just lost lives, but they're, you know, it's a lost opportunity to have done a better job. And I think we're, we're sort of put in this position where we think that the most logical thing is to think of things as being over and moving on and moving forward or, you know, sort of how do we get something back, right? We start to bargain. But that's why I I feel like more firm than ever about, you know, like the salience of a lot of the ideas um, that Artie and I write about in the book, like the growing kind of movement of people who are starting to incorporate analysis of COVID, like in their work, in their organizing, it's obviously not perfect and it's a work in progress and it's going to take, you know, a very long time, but nothing happens quickly. And hope is like a discipline. It's a praxis. It's not something that just intrinsically comes. And so Mm -hmm. like we can sort of approach this with the cruel optimism of like, (laughs) liberals and capital D Democrats and the Biden administration and Ashish Jha and this kind of framing of like, you know, we need to pursue these things like a post-COVID lifestyle, quote unquote, that are detrimental to our flourishing. 
And I think there's a lot of power in actually stating the alternative, which is pursuing things that will help us flourish. And so often we sort of foreclose on discussion of of pursuing the desires for like building institutions and ideas and strategies that reflect conditions where we could flourish that's tied to these kinds of moments that we have no control over, like the Mm -hmm. idea of the election cycle or the idea of, you know, a Biden presidency being an opportunity, right? And I think we're so tied into this kind of gamified discussion around feasibility and what's reasonable and what's actually, you know, tangible that it takes both so much air away from like talking about what's really going on. But it also like creates in our minds this kind of imposed ending of like, you know, a window of opportunity that's always already just closed for Mm -hmm. the ideas that we actually have. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's important to kind of just like trust yourself and fucking push past it. Well, and this is why, I mean, going through this timeline is preparing for it is draining. Um, Performing it is infuriating. And if anything, doing it, I mean, I've been working on this in pieces for weeks, but, and we've been working on this project for months and years together at this point, but going through all of just this part all at once, I mean, for me, leaves me more than more resolute than ever about the work that we're all doing. The show, like the book that B and I wrote, I mean, this all for me, I think going through this and understanding this again is like a social and political process and what has happened as a result of it. I think, you know, again, leaves me more resolute than ever that it's a problem of political economy. It is fundamental to our political economy of health. That doesn't mean that things couldn't have been better under the same political economy of health. If anything, the fact that things could have been better under the same fucking political economy of health and they weren't is (laughs) even more fucking damning. And so, you know what? Like, fuck it. I'll chase short term things. I'll chase like paid leave and mass mandates returning and socialized medicine and even paid shutdowns or whatever. But I think maybe what we're getting at is like, it's hard to even, you know, talk through this because at the end of the day, we know that all of those things happen, have to happen like towards a horizon of a completely different political economy. Because as we've, you know, been talking about for a long time, I mean, social murder is baked in stuff like COVID has happened before will happen again. And understanding the particular nuances of how it's like happened here and the the social process of it becoming normalized. I mean, it's, I mean, it's devastating, but you know, the alternative, yeah, I guess, as we've seen the alternative to going through and understanding this is just like, Oh, you know, I don't know. People were just like irrational in being, over worried about all those people who died, all those people who died, all the people who have long COVID, all the every every fucking extenuating circumstance going off from COVID is be mentioned at the top. All the all the children who like don't have a caregiver, mm-hmm. you know, fuck them, fuck it, like fuck it all. 
You know, like that's the fucking alternative. Or it's like somehow orthogonal to what politics is about. Yeah, it's not right. Exactly. It's 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 the it's the sum product, right? That yeah. that that pile is the sum product. Yeah. So. Yeah. Time to get to work. Yep. Time to get to work. Well, last year I ended us with like a Essex Hemphill quote from when my brother fell. So I pulled another one for this year from right. a different poem. Uh, this is one from also from ceremonies uh, from a poem called For My Own Protection. And uh, Essex writes, we should be able to save ourselves. I don't want to wait for the Heritage Foundation to release a study. <laughs> if we have to take tomorrow with blood, are we ready? Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So I just thought that was like a good vibe to end Perfect. on for today. Let's close it there. Thank well, you to patrons. everybody. Yeah. Patrons, thank Thanks you. Literally, this show doesn't happen without you. made it this far. You. There's now yeah. a secret code. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, though, I mean, honestly, doing this work and getting to know all of you who listen to the show has been the greatest joy and honor. And um, just as much as like we help you all get through the week, you help us get through the week, too. And yeah. We're serious when we say we couldn't do this without you. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, then become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. Uh, one is free and, and available publicly. The other is for patrons. And uh, Sometimes we unlock those, but you know we do 104 episodes a year and only half of them are sort of free. So if you want to support our work and get access to that other half, then become a patron. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends. You can post about your favorite episodes. You can pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library. And you can always follow us at deathpanel underscore. And I think as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
Thank you.